Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Wednesday morning, May 24, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, No Shot Josh. Good morning. You will not catch him ever again asleep at the switch. You should see he the learned. look of anticipation in his eyes. It's like, yeah, I, you know, I, I drug around one morning. I ain't dragging around <laughs> anymore. Mess around and get locked in the car is what you'll do if you hang around with uh with us. Remember the story I told you, Rev? My daughter carries a friend with us to the beach. Um, <laughs> she didn't realize how we roll. <laughs> you, don't, you don't waste any time. Well, I mean, my wife and I own every record. Despite what you may believe, she and I own every record in how fast a meal can be eaten at a fine dining restaurant, a casual restaurant, fast food joint. Doesn't matter how fast you've done it. We've done it um, faster. <laughs> I have shoved people out of the line at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> And we don't have a damn place to go. I mean, we don't have anywhere to go. It's like we, we'll, we'll lecture to ourselves. We'll sit down and we'll look at one another and say, hey, we're not in a hurry, right? Nope. So let's let's enjoy ourselves. <laughs> let's let's actually taste the food uh, for once in our lives. Ten minutes later, we're out of there. You're done. We're done. <laughs> and we're looking at our watch like, well, I mean. It, That's it, just efficiency. At I, its I best. don't know if it's efficiency or not. Uh, efficiency. Bumps into stupidity, uh, bumps into <laughs> not having anywhere to go. No. But anyway, Josh was a little, not, I don't think Josh was slow. But, we'll te- but tell the story about your daughter's friend. Well, I mean, yeah, so, so we go to <laughs> Polly's Island, and uh, my daughter had gotten to the age that um, she was not as interested in us. You know, when they're real little, they think the parents walk on water. They get to a certain age, they realize not only do they not walk on water, I don't particularly like them. <laughs> You know, and um, yeah, and they begin adopting. Now, I'll, I'll tell you this: the moments in my life that have been most troublesome and trying have been when my, when my wife and daughter are, are are not enthusiastically in love with one another. You know, the the way the mom and daughter argue is a foreign concept to man. I mean, it just is. And I'm talking about man literally. I'm not talking about <laughs> man figure. Men, when your when your wife begins debating with your daughter, just take your hearing aid out. Turn the television up. Um, walk off. You know, go go get a beer. Do something other than try to intervene. It's it's hopeless. And you will eventually end up being the reason they can't come to terms yeah, I don't with have, whatever I, it is. I don't have daughters, well, so I mean, this is a foreign concept it's, to me. It's very, and it was a foreign concept to me after having two boys. You know, I can handle the boys, so to speak. Well, when the boys get a bit out of line, I can handle the boys. I can I can rustle them back into, into reality. But but with the with the mother daughter dynamic, and there's um that there, there there's some contentious moments there. Just get out of the way. Just pretend you don't hear it. Don't try to address it. Um, if she disrespects your wife, just kind of kind of let it go. I mean, I know that's against you know the code of chivalry and and defending a woman's honor. But but just remember this: you can't win. I mean, in that dynamic, you can't win. So just let them. Um, come to grips with what color brown shoe they need to wear. Because I mean, that, that's what it's normally about. <laughs> is this the right shade of brown shoe or not? And uh, one believes it is, one believes it's, it's not. And it, it intensifies from there because it's a big deal, right? I mean, you got light brown, medium brown, you say dark so. brown. Um, you know, does it go with that off-white dress or not? And the next thing you know, um, that there's a, a, a pretty vigorous debate going on about the light brown, the medium brown, or the dark brown shoe. And if you try to intervene you'll end up being the, the target. I mean, you'll end up with the bullseye on your back. So go back to the story. So so my daughter got to the point that she was um uh, just 
just not enamored with us. <laughs> so we would allow her to carry a friend so they could, you know, do their thing. My wife and I could kind of, I mean, I'm not talking about doing their thing. I'm talking about, you know, wander off. I mean, she's eight years old or whatever. It was seven or eight years old. Brings a friend with her. This friend um, has a reputation of, you know, uh, being a little more laid back than we are. I mean, I love this. I mean, she's actually still a friend of my daughter's, a great friend, a dear friend of my daughter's. Uh, went, I think they they began at 4K together. I mean, one of these church schools, you know, uh, daycare is what it is, but they call it 4K or something. It's not tax-funded nor, nor publicly funded. My wife would let her off at a church. She makes a friend with this little girl. They've remained friends since the age of four. Uh, they're 20 now. They're both at the University of South Carolina. Um, they're both working at the beach this summer, not living together, but both working at the beach um, this summer. Anyway, this, this little friend I noticed was a bit more laid back than we were. She was not quite as motivated, um, as breaking records, getting in and out of cars, going to restaurants, eating in restaurants, whatever it was we were doing. So, um, so anyway, I get out of the car, normal speed, 300 miles an hour. My wife gets out of the car, normal speed, 300 miles an hour. My daughter has been trained. I mean, she knows, hey, they'll lock you in this car now. Um, <laughs> so my daughter jumps out. We don't think we're jumping out. I mean, we think we're, we're, we're proceeding as normal. Yeah. Um, close the door. I press the key fob. Excuse me. I mash the key fob, lock the door. My daughter, Lib, comes to me and says, hey, you locked, I don't want to call her name, you locked her in the car. So, <laughs> you know, we, it's like a little puppy. You know, you look inside the car. There's this face like, you know, dang. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> am I, am I, is, is there is there a, is there a, a, a criminal on the loose? Is, is am I under threat of gunfire? And um, so I had to unlock the door, let her out, apologize. Um, but I did notice a little more pep in her step since then. That may be one of those um, teaching moments. She yeah. may, uh, I just wonder if they've joked about this because my, my daughter and I have joked about remember, remember the, time. the time. Sure. Yeah, and and, and you know uh, my daughter will laugh about it and kind <laughs> of joke about it. But anyway, um, yeah, we didn't think we were moving at warp speed, but but well, obviously you need to get in that restaurant in case well, they run out of food. You got to break that record. That might have been there. one of those restaurants we didn't have the 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 record, and then <laughs> we go back home and do nothing. I mean, you know, just right. sit there and watch the Braves play or watch the Gamecocks uh, play or whatever. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We got kind of an interesting show today. Um, I'm kind of excited. Um, I'm not anxious. Not nervous. Um, didn't sleep any differently last night than I did today. Um, every now and then, I think this show takes on uh, a different objective. I think there are reasons to um, to be more motivated at times than others. Um, I feel a little bit like a journalist, about as close as I'd ever want to feel to being a journalist. Made a lot of mental notes to myself last night, wrote down a lot of things, um, sent myself three or four emails to make sure I understood what needed to be asked of the superintendent when he gets here at 8.05, scheduled to appear, District 1 Superintendent Rich O'Malley. Uh, we've extended invitations to every board member. That invitation stands. Um, nobody has taken up on or taken us up on on that offer yet. That's unfortunate, but it is what it is. I mean, all I can do is extend the invitation to the elected officials responsible for raising your taxes or not. Um, they're choosing to allow the superintendent to come on um, at 8.05 and address that question or these questions I have. I mean, I would imagine it'll be more informative. I mean, he'll know more of the answers than the school board members will. Um, I don't have any interest in gotcha. I don't have any interest in. All I want to do is get to the bottom of I want to try, and I guess this is why I'm probably more motivated than normal 
I'm going to try to get explanations or answers to questions that taxpayers have. You know, I was thinking about it riding over. That there's a philosophical place I come from. That there's an ideological perspective I have. It is to be against taxes. I mean, just naturally, I'm naturally inclined. If someone says raise taxes, no, no, no. I mean, that's not fair. That's not practical. That's not pragmatic. I think it's normally right. But, but I think you've got to hear it out to the end. I mean, there may be justified reasons. And I think, you know, we as a political, politically centric radio show owe it to our listeners who are taxpayers the information to make a. Now, now once again, this is not a referendum. I mean, you'll not have the ability to say yay or nay on the, um, on the tax increase. This will be in the hands of school board members. Um, Rev asked an interesting question Monday, I think, when you said, wonder if it's unanimous. I don't have any idea. We've not had second reading. Um, I guess in June we'll find out whether it is indeed, you know, uh, a unanimous vote or not. Is there some contention uh, or, or tension amongst the, uh, the school board members? Don't have any idea of any of that. I did talk to someone yesterday who was pretty friendly with a school board member who said he hadn't made his mind up to support or not um, the tax increase. But, but philosophically, let's go to the pragmatic, you know, practical perspective. A man has a right to explain himself. I mean, it doesn't matter to me. You may have a, a predisposition about a, a government official. I do. I mean, I, I level with you. I mean, I've said it a lot. I mean, you know, I am to some degree racist. I am to some degree biased. I am to some degree chauvinistic. I am to some degree bigoted. I don't think I'm a bigot. I don't think I'm a racist. I don't think I'm a chauvinist. But but I'm not. I mean, I, you know, my 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 integrity is not above reproach. I mean, I you know, I've got some blips on the radar. I've, I've got some feelings and and some um uh, so, so some. Uh, I mean, I'm willing to be introspective about it. I'm willing to say, hey, you know, wh- why do you feel like this about that? Um, you know, Dylan Mulvaney. Let's use that for an example. Dylan Mulvaney may be as sincere a soul as there is on this planet. I mean, I think it's weird. It's unbelievably abnormal. And society's attempt to normalize it is something that I want to push against. I, I'm not trying to control what Dylan Mulvaney does or not. I, I'm not trying to control what Bud Light does or not, or Coors Light, or Miller Light, or whomever does whatever. Target. I don't know if you saw this or not. Target decided to be woke. I mean, I, I'm not big on cliches, but, Solid. you know, go woke, go broke. Mm-hmm. They've got these um, specially equipped bathing suits. That will do creative things, you know, to make you appear to be something you are not. They're called tuck friendly. Yeah, yeah there tuck you go. friendly. Yeah, I read that. The hell. Uh, yeah. Anyway, anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, but but anyway, Target had it at the front of the store. Mm-hmm. They decided not so smart. Let's move that to the back of the store because here comes, you know, here comes mother, father, the child. They didn't lock in the car into Target, and and the child says to mama, well, "Is that a he or a she?" You know, um, now the other child's locked to the car. They'll, they'll never be, um, they'll, they'll never have to be exposed to any of these, uh, this nonsense. But, but it's Target's business. You know, the, the, the marketplace will address that as the marketplace addresses it. And um, it's interesting, the Target CEO was on CNBC toward the end of last week and uh, loudly and proudly, that word seems to be associated with that movement, proudly proclaimed, you know, themselves woke. And now, um, less than a week into the ordeal, Target has decided uh, we're woke, but not quite as woke as we thought we were. 
And now they're moving they're, they're, some of the. They're um, going to tuck those displays yeah. into the back, are they? They're, they're going to tuck the tuck away bathing suits in a um in another sort of display area. I I don't know. I mean, but but anyway, I want to go back. So so, but but Target has a right to do what they choose to do. Sure. Bud Light has a right to do what they choose to do. The school board has every right. I mean, they are fully authorized to attempt to raise your taxes to have a debate. The, the only thing I'm trying to do is allow information to make its way to the people who will be eventually footing the bill. That's all I'm interested in. Now, philosophically, ideologically, I tend to be very opposed, passionately opposed to tax increases. I, I just, I believe, and this goes to philosophy and ideology. I believe in, in, in my simple theory, and, and it's not an economic theory. I'm certainly not teaching it at Harvard or, or Princeton or Yale or Stanford Business School, but I believe that, that eventually you get to a place where the government is in charge of so many, so much of our GDP that the GDP just can't grow. I mean, that's my philosophical, ideological bent. Uh, pragmatically, the school board has every right to ask for more of your money. The school board, uh, by constitution, has every right to vote to raise your taxes and take more of your money. I mean, they're not breaking any law by doing this. But, but I think the public needs to be, we need to stop watching Seinfeld as much as we do and start paying closer attention to some of these things that impact our personal and, and financial lives. And that's what I attempt um, to do today. I think I've got some very fair questions to ask of the, um, of the superintendent. And, and, I, and I'll preface any of this debate with, with, with Rich O'Malley, which will probably turn into a debate. I mean, he's advocating for a tax increase. I am by now kind of advocating against a, a tax increase. And it's not from a practical, pragmatic perspective, but rather philosophically and ideologically. Um, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks back. I hadn't talked about this because uh, I think you can get real confusing and weedy. I mean, you get in the weeds real quick when you start going down this road. Government, the growth of government. I mean, you got government spending, you got government employment, you got all these other sorts of things. The growth of government is outpacing the growth of GDP in the private sector by about one percentage point. I mean, that's in the last 16 quarters. I mean, that's four years. Pretty good track record. It's never happened in, in peace times. I mean, there's never been a single quarter in American history other than World War II and when we're fighting wars because we're making big investments. I mean, when we're trying to prepare to win a war, we're making enormous investments into our defense spending. I mean, you can win or lose the war. I don't win the war. Well, we got to have bullets and, and weaponry and, you know, manpower and all these other things. So, so the inversion happens on the rare occasion. Well, it ain't so rare with America. But, but on, the, um, on the normal rare occasion that we've actually declared war on someone and we're fighting for our freedom, liberty, and existence. I mean, that, that's normally when you see that inversion. For the past 16 quarters, growth in government has outpaced GDP growth in the private sector, that's including consumer spending. I mean, it's not just, I mean, there are different ways to look and calculate what GDP is, but that includes consumer spending. So government is growing at a, at a 1% faster rate than the private sector. You can say, well, it's only 1%. Well, it's 25%. I mean, the one's at about 4%, one's at about 3%. I mean, the growth in government is somewhere in the neighborhood of 4% GDP growth, and this includes the COVID growth. Remember, we had a couple of quarters north of 5% because the government infused so much money into the economy 
And, uh, you know, it was negative growth during COVID. Remember the shutdowns, lockdowns, and and all these other sorts of things. That is a, I mean, ideologically, that's concerning and alarming to me, that that we tend to be trending that way. We tend to accept, you know, that, that, hey, that's just the way it is. You know, we live in a country now that has decided to let its government grow at a faster rate than its private. Think of that, guys. I mean, it's 623. But, but, but think, chew on that for a second. I mean, we live in the most prosperous nation in the history of mankind from an economic or a socioeconomic perspective. As Milton Friedman famously says, nothing has lifted, you know, the, the, the plot of the, uh, the, of the common man out of poverty like capitalism has. But we live in a nation today where the government is growing at about 25%, the, 25% faster than the private sector is growing. And nobody's screaming and yelling because most people are kind of dependent upon some of that government. That's kind of where we've gotten ourselves. And I've always said that would be the dirty secret. I mean, can we, can we, um, can we bribe enough people to forsake their political ideologies because it's a lot easier to do it this way? I'm dependent upon government to do this. I'm dependent upon government to do that. I'll give an example. Don't want to call a name, but before we go to our first break. So, so I'm with a, a group yesterday. I'm a part of the uh, the fundraiser. I told you yesterday, Beverly came on late in the show. Uh, my wife's family has had some, uh, a person in the family's had some serious medical issues. It's caused tremendous hardship out uh, of the family. Cooks for Christ. You know how they pick these people who are having uh, difficulties as a result of a, uh, a medical situation. So anyway, I've been a, um, I've been attending the meetings. Uh, I've been intimately involved uh, yesterday. I'm, you know, at the prep day. Tuesday's the prep day for the Thursday you know, chicken bog, and um, and I began talking to two guys that retired from the government. Good, decent men. I mean, very honorable people. Um, I've known one a long time. I've not known the other long at all, but but we talked about retirement. He had retired a couple of three years ago, and he said, I'm, uh, he's in his mid-60s, 60, I think 65 or 6 or maybe even 7, but, but he said, you know, talking about he had something to do with uh, some medical procedure he had to have done, but, but he told me his health insurance costs $80 a month. I mean, retirement of the government, his health insurance costs $80 a month. Mm. Mine don't. <laughs> <laughs> I can assure you that. Mine doesn't cost $80 a month. Uh, and I'm much less of a health risk than he is. I can assure you of that. And, and I was thinking about the transfer of wealth. You know, we talk a lot about the transfer of wealth from America to Saudi Arabia. The transfer of wealth uh, from, the, uh, from the government. The, the biggest transfer of wealth in America today is from the private sector to the public sector. I mean, I, I like to be provocative at times and say the public sector has declared war on the private sector. Give me all of your money or else. You know, but you, you got a man retired from the government. Did a great job. Was a phenomenal employee, I would imagine. But, but, but now his health care is costing him. I mean, he's, sick, he's in his mid-60s, and his health care is costing him 80-something dollars a month because they made a deal. You know, it's taxpayer funded. So, so the guy paying the taxes, it, I mean, he's he's not paying $84 a month. I can assure you of that. The guy that retired from the government is, and, and once again, I just think that's where we're headed. I mean, I'm not angry at anybody about anything. It's just hard to argue that that's not where we are. We've, um, I mean, the government's growing 25% faster than the private sector in the most capitalistic society in the history of mankind. I mean, that, that's where we are. And, you know, and they're asking for more. I mean, the government's growing it. I mean, it's just, so think about it. I mean, when you ask for a tax increase, 
You decrease the size of the private sector. You increase the size of the public sector. I mean, you can go to any economic school you'd like. You can make any argument you wish. That's the reality. When you raise taxes, you make the public sector larger at the expense of the private sector. I mean, that's in, there's no way to argue anything other than that. Now, we can argue the merits of or against, but, but that's the reality. And that's where we are in America today. And, and many, many, many um, conservative principled people just choose to say, ah, man, that's just kind of the way it is now. I mean, that's just, you know, that, that train has left the barn. That horse has left the proverbial <laughs> and, and, and nobody station. asked me, you know, you said, we, this is where we are. This is where we're going. And I can't argue with that, but nobody asked me. You don't have the authority to take money from the government. The government has the authority to take money from you. Yeah, that's true. But that's the crux of the matter. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, Ron DeSantis, I guess the big story. We'll do some, um, I mean, Rich O'Malley will be here at 8. We'll talk a lot about the school debt uh, or school uh, the school tax increase. Rev, uh, understand the confusion. It's not confusion. It's frustration. You know, nobody asked me. But they did ask you. They did ask you. Well, they asked you to vote for a member of the school board. Yeah, but they didn't run on raising taxes, did they? They well, didn't I mean, say, if you vote for me, my philosophy is we need higher taxes and more of your money to run the district. Uh, let me ask you a question. I'm not picking you up do, on you. You, but do, you, do, you do trust them to make those decisions that are the best decisions for the community, the district, et cetera. Did but, you ask your school board member where they stood on tax increases? No, I did not. I've never had a chance to speak to a school board member. I mean, I don't, yeah, we have. I mean, we had, had a couple a come on. on. Yeah, we've had a few come on on the show. Um, you know, may, maybe we need to, and I don't think it's fair to ask for someone to make a solemn vow that they'll never raise taxes. I mean, I, I, I agree I, with to, that. To, I mean, I, I, that's unfair to the person. Um, you know, under what sort of circumstances or situations would you raise taxes? You know, that that's a very appropriate and fair-minded question. But I think it's a bit high-browed to say, I need you to pledge to me right now because I host this radio show that has a lot of listeners that control your political fate future. And you better swear to me right now, you better prick your finger and sign in blood that you'll never. I mean, there are groups like that that exist. I mean, there, there are no tax pledge groups out there that exist. And if you're a Republican, you're inclined to kind of sign those because you know where the ideological, philosophical perspective of the core of, of your voters are. I just think that's unfair. I mean, nobody knows what tomorrow holds. You know, there's a big debate in, in politics today, and it goes back to kind of what we talked about with Dr. Bolt yesterday with Jeffersonians. I remember when I served on county council, um, the local government fund um, had been fully funded. Uh, remember the world blew up in 2008? That was kind of a reset. I mean, looking back on this, that, that was really the day that government won. I mean, when did we start down the road of becoming a socialist? I mean, the New Deal. Fundamentally, I mean, that, that would have been one of the catalysts that led us down the road of um, accepting, I didn't say liking or loving, accepting that government is going to have a lot more say in the way we conduct the affairs of the private sector, the interaction, uh, you know, between the, the public and private and private sectors. But 2008 is the day, I mean, 2001, if you're talking about, you know, the homeland security part of our, our government. You know, we're going to spy on people more so than we ever have. We're going to read 
um, communiques between, you know, Josh and his father to find out if they're funding terrorists or trying to, to build a bomb. I mean, a lot of our personal liberties and freedoms we gave up after 9-11. Um, I mean, we freak out. Remember what Gorsuch said? You know, when, when the government knows you're afraid, they're going to take that opportunity to assume more power, more control. Um, 9-11, you know, a lot of us were like, yeah, I'll take my shoes off if it means I don't die in a you know, blown-up airplane. Uh, that That's a liberty and freedom that we gave up. Now, some are reasonable and practical. Some are not. And, you know, my, my fear is, and it always has been, show me a government program that goes away or gets smaller. I mean, I, I, I think Homeland Security was as well-intended as anything ever. I mean, in that moment, people were nervous about their safety. Do I want to get on this plane or not? And, and all of a sudden, we, we look to government to create some sort of um, safety valve to make sure we're all taken care of. And we deferred, as we normally do. And in all fairness, who can keep you safe on an airplane if not government? I mean, do we trust, you know, um, the, the bottom line of one of these carriers? I mean, do you really believe the airline carriers would invest what is necessary to make sure, in other words, they can make $100 billion in profit this quarter or hire 1,000 more, you know, agents to make sure they aren't? You see where I'm headed. I mean, it, it's always the yin and yang with the bottom line and uh, and the product delivered. Now, I get it. I mean, the the, um, the ultimate, the anarchist or someone like me would say, well, I mean, if, you, if a plane blows up, nobody flies on your airline any longer, so the market does dictate you know, who wins and loses, but who wants to take the chance of 500 people dying in an airplane? Uh, nobody. I mean, so, so, so I understand, you know, the, um, the confusion it creates, but, but 2008, I mean, looking back on it, 2008, the day that they bailed the banks out was the day that someone like Donald Trump became inevitable. I mean, I, you know, is it Trump? I mean, if somebody said, hey, do you think Donald Trump will be president now? I don't know, but some outsider will. I mean, somebody who says the game is rigged, you know, everything you think they're doing, they are. Everything you suspect is happening, it is. I mean, that, that's kind of the, um, and that's, I mean, it's fed upon itself. And people like me who are inclined to kind of go down that rabbit hole anyway were given, we were somewhat empowered, right? I mean, you know, you, you got a conspiracy theorist and a contrarian and a cynic and, and somebody who doesn't care much for government, and, and he's a bit on the fringe or, or he's a bit of an outlier, and all of a sudden, you know, this happens and that happens. Um, I, I've often said, as, as stupid as I am, whomever was in charge of bailing the banks out had to think about, I better, I mean, I've, I've said this before, and, and some of my buddies laugh when I say it, under what stipulation are you giving us this money? I mean, if I'm Fed, if I'm um, what was his name? Uh, not Bernanke. Bernanke was uh, uh, Fed chair. Greenspan. No, not Greenspan. The other guy. I mean, uh, Treasury Secretary under under Bush. Um, see, my my, I, I, I can see him as clear as a bell. He's a big football player, um, an honorable man, a decent man. But but you know they go in the room. But I, Superman don't fly. And margin call and too big to fail and all these these movies. I'm sure they took creative liberties, but it was the uh, Treasury Secretary under Bush, uh, Paul O'Neill. That no, no, there was another one. Another I, one. May not have been Treasury. Paulson. I, pa, pa, Hank Paulson. Hank Paulson is who I'm thinking about. Formerly of Goldman Sachs. I think he may be back at Goldman Sachs now, but that's just the way that world, the way that world works. But but Paulson had to sit down with Diamond and and Blankfein and Fink and all these you know these um. 
I'm the CEO of BlackRock and Vanguard and J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and Citibank and Bank of America. And he had to say, look, I mean, th- this thing is, is broken. I mean, if we don't do what we shouldn't do, and that is bail you out, the whole economy collapses. So because we, we have an obligation to make sure the economy doesn't collapse, we're going to do something we shouldn't do, and we're going to remove you from moral hazard. But I better not see the first damn helicopter land on top of your buildings, and I better not see the first Facebook post from the Hamptons for at least three years. You see where I'm headed? And in fact, I, I, can, you, can the government propose a contract to a private company that if any of that happens, you're removed from your duties? You're no longer the CEO of Goldman Sachs. You're no longer the CEO of BlackRock. You're no longer the CEO of, of Vanguard or, or J.P. Morgan. I think Jamie Dimon weathered it well because they hadn't take. I mean, they, they didn't get as involved in subprime lending uh, as some of the other big banks did. But but that that was the day that that we began accepting that the government's going to do things that we never imagined the government's going to do. And, and and you know, really smart business people said, okay, how do I advantage? I mean, philosophically, I'm a conservative and I'm for less government. But but I don't want to miss out. I mean, if the government's going to get involved in all these things and they're going to move the meter in the marketplace as much as anybody ever has, then I want to make sure I'm c- kind of swimming downstream with the government instead of upstream against the government. And we've seen enormous fortunes created as a result of government policy. That shouldn't be the case. I mean, in a capital economy, and this goes back to my belief of the, the fear I have about our economy looking forward, um, you know, the Chinese economy is built on manufacturing. I mean, they make widgets that there's a tangible value. The Russian economy is on producing energy. I mean, we can argue about, you know, well, these countries are boycotting and these countries, uh, you know, violate human rights issues. But the reality is that, that our economy has become very financialized and very controlled. So, so you've got an economy that is controlled by the government in China, but it's a manufacturing economy. You've got an economy in Russia that's controlled by the government, but it's an energy producing economy. To me, we have an economy that is being ever more controlled by the government, and it doesn't make anything. I mean, it's the financialization economy. Um, you know, you got people that move a stack of papers from one side of a desk to the other side of the desk. I'm not saying that's all they do. I mean, there's got to be some sophistication in that financialization, but we're not making things. You know, what is that worth? What, what, what is the hedge fund manager really worth? And I think the government has has created winners and losers. I think the government plays favor and Curry's favor. I think they exchange favor one from another. So we've got an economy probably not as controlled. And I, I use the word probably, literally, probably not as controlled as in Beijing, probably not as controlled as Moscow, but at least, at least those two government-controlled economies make stuff of tangible value. We have, you know, given the government more control and more control and more control of a financialized economy that doesn't manufacture and right now is not producing um, sufficient energy. And I, I just don't know how you look at those practicalities and not be pessimistic. I mean, it's just bizarre to me to believe. And there are people with their head in the sand who say, well, I mean, we got smart people that went to Harvard in charge. I mean, everything will be okay. I mean, this guy's, you know, he's credentialed as much as anybody in the world. Just just kind of trust him to do that. And, and I still go back to my concern. When, when the government, when you live in a capitalist economy, and some argue we still do, I think it's a fair debate, but the government is growing 
25% faster than the private sector. I mean, help me with that. <laughs> does, does that mean it tips from sure. capitalist to socialist? Well, I mean, that, that's where we are. I mean, you know, I don't know how far down the seesaw we are. I mean, I, you know, I don't have any idea there. I'm not bright enough to, to clearly understand where we are in that process. But how do you argue anything other than that? If the government is growing by 1% faster than the private sector economy, and that includes consumer spending, that's 25% more. How are we not heading to a place of socialism? 843-661-0937. And, you know, to the victor go the spoils. You know, if you're eating what you kill, you're paying two grand a month for health care. If you're working for the government, G-U-B-M-E-N-T, you know, they're, they're kind of taking care of you. Uh, pretty substantial. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, fellas. Uh, I'm a little bit concerned. Sounds like to me you're wanting to go on to your special summer hours and take this first hour off. Uh, I, I, I bet against that. I've been with you the whole time. Yeah, I, I, to- I've got a contract that binds me to oh. 6, uh, 6 a.m., and I enjoy it. We just knew that when people's schedule changes, that there would be kind of an adjustment period, and it's happened every year, Sam, from 6 until 7 at the end of May, 1st of June, we just go dark. I mean, it just it's dead all of a sudden. Well, we 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 uh, we're I think we still out here and we're listening. But you, you know, it takes us a while too to get going. I think early, early in the morning. I'm what I want to do is uh, I want to uh, clarify something I said yesterday, and Charles kind of followed up and um, hello to Charles about you know we we're talking about the PPPs and the ERC uh, cre- the credits and stuff like that. Well. The, the PPP loans, if you qualify for that, that was forgiven at the federal level. Whether there was some con- or there was some issue with that loan, with that particular program was how the states were going to treat it. Some states uh, uh, treated that differently and did include that in income. South Carolina uh, said they, they took the federal stance and, and forgave the loans. The ERC credit, uh, if you if you qualify for that, here's the way that thing worked. Uh, you, you, uh, an employer could go back and he could take uh, a credit for qualifying wages um, in earlier years, 2020, 20, I think it was 20, part of 2021, part of 22, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they take, they, so they get the credit. And so, but what happens is if, if you get the credit and a credit is a good thing in taxation, a dollar's worth of credit saves you a dollar's worth of tax. And so that's a good thing. But what the IRS also stepped in and said, okay, we're going to give you the credit, but if you took a deduction in those prior years for those wages, you're going to have to amend your return, and you're going to have to reduce those expenses, which is going to increase your income. And so let's say if you're in the in the 20% tax bracket, you're going to pay, uh, 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 on, on, let's say, a $100 credit. Uh, you get a hundred dollars de- uh, credit, but then they're going to tax it. If you're a twenty percent bracket, when you file your minute return, you're going to pay twenty dollars. So you're going to get to keep eighty dollars. You're eighty dollars ahead with that ERC credit. It's kind of the way. So some of the folks tell you that that's income. It it is technically when you amend your return, you reduce your expenses, which increases your income, and you get taxed on it. But that credit is still a a, a gift from the government. Uh, for for that, 
uh, you know, for those times. And the, and the other thing, too, I recommend you, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but uh, I saw last night on YouTube, uh, Dirty Mo, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. was doing his show, and he is really down and depressed about the way the uh, All-Star race wound up. And I think he takes full responsibility for it. So if you get a chance to get out there on YouTube, um, go to Dirty Mo, Mo and he's, he's questioning the future of short tracks in NASCAR if they don't do something with the tires or the formats to, to um, 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 you know, make the racing at short tracks better. So anyway, I just wanted to clarify that. I hope that helps a little bit, or maybe it confuses more when it comes to the <laughs> Thank you, sir. It helped me. It, it does. Appreciate yep. that. That's a good explanation. Um, I've already watched the Dale Jr. podcast. Of course you have. Um, he is unbelievably distraught that, that he led NASCAR down this road. I mean, Dale Jr.'s got a lot of sway. I mean, a lot of people listen to him. I'd argue he's still probably the most popular figure. I mean, he's the Tiger Woods of, of racing. Whether he's playing or not, people care what he has to say. And, and I'll say this, one of my favorite dudes on this planet that I've never met. The, the one thing, and I've said this before, guys, the one thing that Dale Earnhardt and Chase Elliott, one was the most popular driver in NASCAR, one is the most popular driver in NASCAR, they both know and accept that they didn't hit triples. They were born on third. I mean, if it was Dale Smith or Chase Jones, <laughs> they'd probably be beating around, you know, Florence or Myr well, the Myrtle Beach Speedways now houses. Imagine that. Um, Torpor yeah. Racetrack built more houses. There's progress. In Horry County. But, um, but, so what's the rub well, I mean, with the race? D Dale Jr. Was, was not solely but largely responsible for convincing the racing world that North Wilkesboro needed to be saved. There was so much history there. So, so much connection. Yeah, nostalgia the was awesome. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's who NASCAR is. I mean, it's Junior Johnson. It's Daryl Waltrip. It's Dale Earnhardt Sr. It's Kel Yarborough. It's the Alabama gang. I mean, it's Rusty Wallace and Bill Elliott and Mark Martin. I mean, it's everything good about NASCAR. Everything truly, truly, sincerely uh, reflective of racing the way racing was intended to be. And the race sucked. I mean, the race sucked. Now, Chase Elliott says, when you have a really good driver in a really good car, there's a potential race sucks. Chase said, I like being the really good driver in the really <laughs> when good it's you, car. It's awesome. You know, and, and, and you know, it's so, you know, he said, I've been on both ends of that. I mean, I've been on the giving and taking end. Um, I've seen a car and a driver get hooked up in a way that Kyle Larson um, did Sunday night at uh, North Wilkesboro. But, but Junior feels like he led NASCAR back here. And he's proud of that. And everybody was celebrating about that. And the race sucked. And, and he's talking about, and, and I mean, I've got some opinions, and Junior has opinions a lot better uh, than mine. Rev and I have always debated, you know, did that violate the driver's code of conduct or not? I'm convinced that nobody knows that but the drivers. You know, you didn't give me room. Uh, you dumped me. You hooked me. Um, you know, you, you ran me to the wall. You, you and I look at it on television. We've never driven a car like that, right. so we don't really know. Um, when you should give a guy room, when you shouldn't, um, when you intentionally hooked or, or you know, knocked somebody out of the wall. I mean, there, there's, I, I just think that if you do it long enough, you know what you should or shouldn't do. You know what's acceptable and what's not not acceptable. But, but Junior is unbelievably troubled by the um, the, the events of Sunday night, um, the, the, the future of short track racing, um, I mean, people go to, believe it or not, I mean, I don't care what the liberal media says. You ready? I'm going to defend my, 
my, uh, my redneck brethren. We go to racing to watch good races. I mean, that, that's why I go, to, when I watch a race, I mean, I'm a fan of a certain driver or two or three. I like this driver. I don't like that one. That makes it kind of fun. I mean, I don't like that 11 car. I kind of like that nine car. You know, I, I don't like that, that uh, 45 car. I kind of like that 54 car. Um, and, and so we all have, I say we all race fans have that perspective, but, but you got to give these guys the ability to race and, and following one another. The only way I mean, I heard driver after driver after driver say, you know, the only way I could have passed him was to wreck him. And I'm not here to wreck people, you know, last lap's a different animal, but when drivers, when nearly every driver says it's a one lane racetrack. And the only way I could pass him was to wreck him. And I ain't here to wreck him because guess what? I got to race him again next week. And they race me like I race them. And if I dump him this Sunday, guess what I get next Sunday? I probably get dumped. And I probably deserve it. And and Junior argues, and a lot of drivers are arguing, they don't have enough power in these cars. They can't, here I go, race talk, you ready? They can't get off the corner like they need to. The brakes need to be better. They can't get into the corner. They standardized and made these cars pretty uniform. They're almost the same. And I think there's beauty in the Chevrolet having an advantage, the Ford having an advantage, the Toyota having somewhat of an advantage. I think super teams have been bad for the sport. I mean, I think the um, the Hendrick Gibbs, you know, um, they, they kind of dominate. I mean, the Hendrick cars have the better cars, and then the Gibbs cars have the better cars. I mean, some of the Fords compete, obviously. But, um, but, but, you gotta. I mean, I've heard Junior say you gotta give them more power to get out the corner, and you gotta get a better brakes to get in the corner. I mean, that's racing. Can I outbreak him into the corner? Can I out accelerate him out of the corner? And these cars are so similar one to another that that once again, when you get on a one track racetrack and it's six tenths of a mile, the only way Rev's ahead of me, and and Rev's not gonna make a big mistake because he's a damn good race car driver. And the only way I can get around him is to you know push him out of the way. And, and I think drivers believe that, you know, that goes back to the code of conduct. I mean, they know when it's okay to push somebody out of the way. I mean, if somebody's holding you up and you bump them two or three or four times and, uh, you know, you, you got to get out. I mean, but, but if you're not that much faster, I mean, if you're that much faster, drivers know the car behind me is about to run over me, man. He's that much faster. Next week, I may be that much faster than he is. So I'm not cutting him any slack, but I got to give him some room to race me. And, and I think Junior believed that North Wilkesboro just did not provide that opportunity. And he was the one. And, and I, you know, you could, you could argue he's the only one that could have convinced NASCAR to go back to, to North Wilkesboro. And I think he's bearing that burden. I mean, I think, he's, I think that's heavy on his heart. And I, and I did watch the podcast. And, um, and he, I mean, he was struggling. I mean, he was like, man, you know, the sport that I love, the sport that's given me everything I've ever had, um, the sport that took my father from me at the age of 50, um, I led it back to a place of its origin and the race sucked <laughs> and it wasn't Kyle <laughs> Larson's fault. You know, it was just the track wasn't ready for it. I, I did hear Denny Hamlin say that he believed the future of racing needed to be in allowing the drivers to have input in resurfacing of tracks, reconfiguring of tracks. He said an engineer, I mean, it's a little bit like the Bud Light saga. I mean, let's go get the best engineer in the world and let him design a racetrack and tell the race car drivers to shut up. <laughs> and the race car drivers are going, no, man, you got to give me more room to come off that corner. If you give me 20 feet wide a racetrack, me and two other cars can race side by side. I can give them room. They can give me room. 
despite what people say, race fans don't go to races to see wrecks. Race fans go to races to see close competitive racing. That's what makes it it interesting. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I sat on the edge of my seat. I don't know how many times my wife has said, do what? On a Sunday afternoon. Because I'm bad about talking to the TV. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get off of him. Uh, you, you, he'll wreck you now. Get off of him. You know, I'm doing that. I'm also like, what would you say? You ever let a oh, word fly? Like, oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm, yeah, yeah. It gets very colorful. Especially when, one, say, of, you yeah, when there? one of those drivers I don't particularly care for. You know, uh Nudge is one of those I do kind of sort of care for. Yeah, it gets a little um, it gets a little colorful around around my house. So she just understands now. Oh, the race zone. He's talking to the TV, not me. He always does. Crazy man. Eight four three six six one zero nine three. I mean, I could do. I could talk uh, about that forever. I was going to thank Sam for uh, for injecting well, I mean, just, a little NASCAR talk into the segment this morning. Well, I mean, my, my father raced. Uh, I, I remember the drive shaft coming out of the car and him jumping the ditch, and I mean, I just. Uh, you know, I remember my dad fighting the man that we ate at the Waffle House after the race with. I mean, as a, as a 10 year, a nine or eight year old, I'm going like, we don't like him. And he doesn't like us because my dad and he were just fighting. And now they're, they're arguing about who's going to pick up the tab, you know, at the Waffle House at two o'clock in the morning. That's racing. Yeah. I mean, that, that's real racing. And that's kind of the way, um, I mean, that, I was raised around it. I've always loved it, admired it. Um, you know, we, we've always, or I have, I can't say to you, one of the people that I've always had great respect for is one of our hometown heroes, Kale Yarborough. Oh, yeah. And I, when I heard Kale's health was in decline, I have a friend who is uh, married to one of Kale's family members, and I reached out to him, and he said, yeah, it's not, I mean, he's not doing good at all, and, and I don't know the specifics, don't need to know, never ask, and I'll never report on what the specifics are. But, um, but we've heard that Kale's health is in decline, and that's part of my history, man. That's part of who who I am and what I'm about. And, um, and, and for Dale Jr. to try as hard as he did to get NASCAR to go back to a place where, where it, I mean, it's, it's intimately linked to its heritage and its history, and it didn't work. Now, now it would be interesting, does Jr. give up? Because, because Denny Hamlin is a bright person. I mean, Hamlin is one of these guys that says, look, let, let's do this. Let, let's get an engineer and an asphalt company, and let's repave North Wilkesboro. But let's get six or eight of us drivers in the room to explain to them. Give us a little more bank here. Give us a little more apron here. You know, give us a little more. Um, give us a little more room to, to to get into that corner harder. But I still believe a lot of it's equipment, and they've tried to make it cost effective. They've tried to to lessen the cost. They've really tried to standardize NASCAR, and it's not standard. I mean, one team should be allowed to be that much better than another team and the other team's got to catch up and i think the input from the manufacturers is a big deal i don't know it's just um it's it's like everything money's the answer what's the question that's you know and dale jr has money and, and access to money and a reputation and, and a pedigree that people in that sport listen to but but i, I and i want to go all the way back to this because th this is why i think chase elliott and dale earnhardt jr are so important i, I was thinking about golf i don't know much about golf the PGA Championship was this weekend. A PGA defector won the PGA Championship. That's a good storyline. That makes it interesting, right? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. Brandel Chambly is mad because, I mean, he carries the water for the PGA. I mean, there's a, there's a storyline there. that there There's something interesting that happens. Goff is going to struggle to be interesting without Phil and Tiger. I mean, it just is. It's going to struggle being interesting. These guys are, I'm sure they're great golfers. I don't know what a great golfer is. I'm smart enough to know that Phil and Tiger are. 
You know, I, I realize both of those guys are pretty damn good in the grand scheme of things, but they had these personalities that there was a, a aura about Phil and Tiger. And I mean, Tiger may be the greatest ever. Is Phil one of the five greatest ever?s And they were playing simultaneously, and they had personalities, and they had a, a certain attitude and character about them. And and you look at these guys now, they're they're like robots. And, and I go back to Elliot Earnhardt. I mean, they, the the one thing that I think people give. Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Chase Elliott, the benefit of the doubt, whether you think you do or not, is because they've never said, look at what I've done. Look at me. You know, I've outworked anybody. I'm just a better driver than anybody. I think they've said without saying it, I've been pretty blessed to have a last name that that means a lot in the NASCAR family and world. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Maybe not. 843-661-0937 is our number. I asked Rev a couple of breaks ago. Uh, some of this kind of plays into content uh, for the show. Do you, I mean, he's talking about DeSantis making an announcement on Twitter. Tim Scott makes an announcement early this week. I mean, that kind of sets the field. I mean, yeah, there, there may be Chris Christie may do what he does, but nobody cares much at all what Chris Christie does. I mean, he does. And I guess he doesn't have much to do, so he'll run for president to say, you know, twice embarrassed uh, former <laughs> candidate for lieutenant, um, excuse me, for, um, for president of the United States. But when DeSantis makes the announcement tonight, I mean, we've kind of set the stage for where the Republican primary process will be. And I go back to the number yesterday that I found interesting. The morning consult poll of May, might have been May 1 or 2 or 3. It was a couple of weeks back. But it asked a, kind of an interesting question. Who is your second choice? Who is your third choice? 44% of DeSantis voters say Trump is their second choice. 43% of Trump voters say DeSantis is their second choice. Um, surprisingly, amongst the Trump voters, Vivek Ramaswamy is the third choice. Nikki Haley is third choice amongst the DeSantis supporters that leads me to believe that the core DeSantis supporter is a little bit more establishment than the core Trump supporter but but it it, it also shows me there is a convergence point I mean there is a there is a place of tolerance that the DeSantis and Trump crowd can get to I, I you know maybe I'm wrong here and maybe it plays out once we get into a hotly contested uh, primary but I, I don't know despite what Trump has said about DeSantis I don't think the voters believe that. I think the voters have reserved judgment. I think the Trump voter has said, hey, Ron's the sanctimonious. I mean, it's funny, but I don't know that I buy that yet. Um, and that, that, that second choice number kind of affirms that. You know, I don't think Trump's at 60. I don't think DeSantis is at 20. I think when, when Trump makes the announcement, I mean, in South Carolina, Trump's probably up 20. But I think across the nation, I mean, in Iowa, New Hampshire, um, that will kind of propel the candidates to South Carolina. I think you're looking at probably 42-3-4-5-ish to 32-33-34-35-ish. Um, I mean, if I'm Trump and the dust settles and I'm not up 10, I'm a little concerned. You know, DeSantis makes his announcement on Twitter. People probably care more about what Elon Musk says than than um than uh, Ron DeSantis, and, but and that's you think he needs to be careful of uh, I mean, being you, overshadowed. You can't be upstaged. I mean, there's a reason. I mean, you know, the, the, the Beatles never had the Stones as their opening act. The Stones never had the Beatles as their opening act. Um, 
I mean, I, I've heard the story of a certain country music singer having this person open the show. This person eventually became a country superstar, and he went to his agent and said, hey, I don't want him opening for me anymore. What, what do you mean you don't? I mean, he's, he's got the, 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 the crowd excited by the time he said, no, he's better than I am. I mean, he's going to be a much bigger star than I ever thought about being. Get that guy out of my way. You know, when, when I get out there and sing my, you know, eight hits from 30 years ago, they're, they're disappointed that the, the new guy ain't out there again. So that's the concern I have if I'm DeSantis. DeSantis is not a charismatic man. I mean, he's competent. He's effective. I mean, you, you got to argue. I mean, you could easily argue it's the best case of conservative government. George Will would always argue that the best example of conservative governance was Rudy Giuliani in New York City. I mean, he really, I mean, Will wrote a lot about Giuliani. He didn't care much for, for Rudy, and I'm sure since Rudy has gotten so associated with Trump, you know, Will cares even less for Rudy. But, but he talked about um, conservatism and, and the nature of conservatism and how Giuliani successfully reformed things in New York City that, that needed reforming. And, you know, DeSantis has been that. I mean, he's been a competent leader. He's been someone not afraid to take on the culture wars. Um, you know, some liberals believe that's to their advantage. If the if the Republicans decide to go down that road uh, of abortion to culture wars, you know, they're going to pay a price. Th- there's some truth to that. I mean, I don't disagree with all of that, but but I do believe there's a way to debate the culture war by saying to females, you know, I don't want your daughter having to compete with 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 men. I, I, you know, with with boys. I mean, I, I, that's I, you got to make it about that instead of abortion. You saw this or not, but South Carolina, Mike Rickenbaugh texted me late yesterday afternoon and said that they had concurred with the House version and um, and the six-week, uh, well, the, the fetal heartbeat bill, I think what we call it, a heartbeat bill in South Carolina is now law of the land. Rev asked if I thought it would stand, you know, the um, judiciary. I do. I think the, um, the House and Senate both actively involved lawyers with a high degree of expertise on abortion law or abortion legislation and what the the courts have traditionally had problems with. You know, I don't know that to be true, but I suspect this is going to hold up in court and we've got a new abortion law in South Carolina. Which, by the way, made national news. I mean, that was on the Fox News uh, cast at the top of the hour on the station nationally. But, but, but if I'm a Republican, if I'm DeSantis, Trump, whomever, I mean, it doesn't matter to me, a Ramaswamy, Haley, uh, Tim Scott, I, I don't want to talk abortion. I mean, you got to steer the conversation away from abortion. I mean, saving babies is a big deal. And I am humbled that our state decided to forsake some political expediency in the name of saving babies. I mean, that's, to me, you know, what's more important, saving a million babies and winning an election. Well, I mean, think about it, guys. In, 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 the, in the most political sense imaginable, to save babies, you got to win elections. Right? I mean, I wish that That's weren't right. the case, but abortion's become a political issue. It, it's controversial. Josh has an opinion. Rev has an opinion. I have an opinion. Um, there are some opinions I respect, some I don't. I mean, the, 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 the governor of Virginia, former governor of Virginia, I don't respect his opinion. That's a bizarre opinion to have. That, that you know, you deliver the baby, you make the baby comfortable while, while the parents decide. I mean, that's a bizarre. I mean, that, that's an evil proposition that's an evil but that that's you know i like to say a concoction from hell but i've said it a lot more than i normally do here here recently but i think it's in the republicans best interest i mean they stake their ground but it's somewhere around six weeks and the exceptions are rape incest live of the mother 
But that seems to be acceptable for the average independent voter. And you can't say, well, I'm not, uh, I'm not constructing abortion legislation based simply on what wins me at the, the polls, okay, or what helps me at the poll. I get that. I mean, I understand there's got to be some virtue here. There's got to be some honor here. There's got to be some dignity. There's got to be some uh, human conviction. I mean, that would be a better way to explain it. I mean, you, you're convicted uh, about this. You believe this. But, but you've got to bounce it off that wall of politics. I mean, you just do. You're, 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 you're an elected official. You have to evaluate how, how we can save babies and win elections. And I think, you know, six weeks, I mean, that's going to be controversial because the Democrats are going to do a good job of framing this as Republicans taking away a woman's right to choose. And it's going to be about health care. It's not going to be about abortion, denying women access to health care. But I mean, that's going to be some of the storyline. Um, and if I were a Democrat, that's what I'd do. I mean, if I were a liberal Democrat that believed a woman should be allowed to have an abortion anytime she chooses, that is exactly the same language that, that I would um, foment. But, but, but I do believe that the Republicans can say, you know, we've, we've stated our case on abortion. We're comfortable with, with, with where we are. We believe that six weeks is reasonable. We believe that rape, incest, life of the mother are reasonable exceptions. What we're most interested in is what happens to these baby girls after they're born. They grow up to be eight, nine, ten-year-old athletes, and they excel. They, they train hard. They, they practice every day. They excel at swimming or, or gymnastics or running or basketball or tennis or whatever. And the next thing you know, they're competing with a 12-year-old boy who's stronger, bigger, faster, more athletic. You, you see, I mean, that, that's where I would steer the debate. It's a little bit like, I mean, in, in, when, when I ran for office and someone would ask, you know, what is the price of eggs in China? I mean, my answer was the government's too big, spends too much money. I mean, how many people are optimal riding the subway in New York to Newark? Government's too big, spends too much money. I mean, you laser focus. The media's not going to help the debate transition from abortion to you know, men competing against women or boys competing against girls in athletic events. I mean, they're going to try to steer away from that because they know that's a little indefensible. You know, this is up to female voters. And I was talking to a buddy of mine Saturday about, um, you know, running for office. How would you, I mean, this question to me, how, what would your pitch be to females to, 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 to make them pay closer attention uh, you know, to the um, the gender dysphoria and the transgenderism and, uh, uh, you know, the, the gender neutrality and transitioning from one gender to another, uh, the tuck bathing suit at Target, which is pretty wild to me. But, you know, hey, let Target have at it and see how the market responds. Uh, I do know that the tuck bathing suit is no longer available in front of um, the Target. It's at the rear now. A um, little uh, play on anatomy there. Anyway, um. <laughs> But, but no, I just think Republicans have to understand that they're underwater with females. And how do you, how do you get from being underwater with females? I think you've got to convince them that you're, you're trying to be reasonable on abortion. Six weeks is reasonable, I think. I mean, some will not. Some will, I mean, and, and there, there are a lot of people that will land in a lot of different places. But I think you've got to figure out a way to situate the debate about this um, women and men competing in sports against one another I'll tell you what, I mean, this is bizarre and weird and crazy to say, but, but you need some woman to get severely injured in an athletic competition. I mean, you, you need a woman to be in a wrestling match against a man or an MMA fight against a man. I mean, the, 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 the primate in me, 
I mean, the, the caveman inside of me, and we all have one. I mean, you do, I do, everybody does. I'm willing to admit that I'm at times probably more than a part caveman. But um, but for the caveman in me, the primate in me says, just I mean, let let some 200 pound man obliterate a 130 pound woman and break her jaw, fracture her skull, you know, put her in a wheelchair for life. I mean, there's no good to that, and you should be embarrassed that you even think that. But but that I think that would cure the problem. I mean, I think somebody would sit down. I mean, if that happened six or eight times in America next week, I mean, you don't think we'd have some sort of national conversation? I sound like Obama now. We need a national conversation about this issue or that issue. But, I mean, if you had women being allowed or men being allowed to compete against women in wrestling or or athletic event, Rev and I were talking um, after we botched the question um, Friday. We actually let somebody name the wrong person as the winner. We've – um. We, we, we've gone to confession. I mean, neither <laughs> of us are Catholic, but we went to confession. Um, because both names had the word Griffith. <laughs> or Joiner. Joiner. I'm sorry, Joiner. <laughs> will we allow the answer to stand? We did. Um, and, and we were wrong doing that. She said, no, one of those three names is right, but it's the wrong person. But, um, but we were talking about, you know, are men naturally faster or stronger than women? In other words, as a percentage. If a man is 15% faster, on average, than a woman. Now, I couldn't outrun Florence Griffith Joyner. You couldn't either. But, but you know, Usain Bolt could. The fastest woman in the world against the fastest man in the world. The fastest man in the world in 100 meters would beat her by somewhere around um, 11 meters. Somewhere thereabout. Um, a second is about what the difference in time is. And a second translates in Usain Bolt's world to about 11.4 meters. Um, is a is the average man more or less than 15% stronger than the average female? And we've agreed we think that would be a bigger difference. So so in a um, in a hundred meter dash, fastest man, fastest woman, fastest man wins by 11.4 meters. In a strength competition, the average or the strongest man is probably 25% stronger than the um, the strongest female. So, you know, 140-pound, very fit, very athletic, very strong female gets in the ring or the octagon with a 185-pound male, very fit, very strong, and, and just let them have at it. And, and about five or six women get their skulls fractured, jaws broken. I, I just believe that, that a lot of these activists would pump the brakes and say, um, let's do this. Let's let men compete against women in the name of gender neutrality where jaws can't get broken and spines can't get severed and skulls can't get, can't get fractured. Um, you know, everybody wants a piece of the action until they really get a piece of, of the action. Let's go to the phone. Here's Roger and Coward. Morning, Roger. Good morning, fellas. I'm going to give you an extreme example that would come right back to the Palmetto State and involve your uh, political activist over in Colombia. What you got to have is a guinea pig uh, conservative that's willing to <laughs> do this. Uh, let P.J. Hall identify as a woman and play on the um, Clemson women's basketball team and let them beat the crap out of Dawn Staley. You know, that's all you'd have to have. One guy from the men's team come over, play on the women's team, and silence Dawn Staley with her idiot self. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Roger. <laughs> See, this is one moment in uh, Roger is a devout tiger. I'm a devout Gamecock. I'm with Roger. 
I mean, that's what I want to see happen. It would be so interesting to watch these female activists who are involved in female sports lose every ounce of clout they have by by men. I mean, they, they, they're 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 active. I mean, they're they're um they're operating in the name of equality and inclusion. I mean, it's nonsense, is what it is. I mean, it's total nonsense, is what it is. But but Roger's exactly right. If PJ Hall, the best Clemson men's basketball player, played on the women's team, the Clemson women would beat South Carolina. I mean, that's not sexist. That's not chauvinistic. Um, somebody asked me one day, how many high school teams, how many boys high school basketball teams would beat Dawn Staley's women's basketball team at South Carolina? And she's kind of been the gold standard for about a decade now in women's basketball. And I said the easier question would be, how many wouldn't? I mean, mm-hmm. I'll say this. My beloved Hannah Pamplico Red Raiders, boys basketball team, I don't know how good they are or not, but they, they would beat Don Staley's women's basketball team. I mean, they'd be up 20 at the half or 10 or 12 or 15 at the half. And um, But but once again, that's not, and I hate to say this, guys, but, but I, I do think it's going to take this. I mean, how many women are going to watch other women be, be, be human sacrifices in an octagon or a wrestling match or, or some strength competition? Because that's all you're doing. You're diluting the value of women athletics by allowing that to have women athletics. Title Nine, what was a what was a um, an acceptance that you know there are different chromosomes. There's an XX and a YY. I mean an XY. You know one's male, one's female. There's a biological difference. And Title Nine basically said, I mean government edict basically said, what we've got to we've got to separate and protect women's sports. Why? Because they're not as big, they're not as strong, they're not as athletic on average. So we're going to let women compete against women and may the best woman win. We're going to let men compete against men and may the best man man win. And in the name of gender dysphoria, which is a mental illness, we, we, we blurred those lines to a place that uh, is, I mean, it, it's, it's bizarre to me that um, this is where America, so not only are we um, growing the government 1% more than, you know, the private sector, and that's what we're doing in half for about 16 consecutive decades, we're confusing you know the the normalcies of science i mean you know biology and and science and uh, forget god forget the bible for a second you know uh, god created man and then god created a woman and it was adam and eve i mean you you know some believe the bible some don't believe the bible but science clearly says there is a distinguishable difference in man and woman but you know wokeism usa says Mm -hmm. Um, hold my beer, literally and feared. Hold, <laughs> hold my beer. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Say, get in the weed or smoke some weed. All right. I'm, drinking, the I'm drinking some Celsius, some watered down Celsius here, but I ain't smoking no weed. Is that what he said or what? <laughs> he said, get in the weed. Oh, well, my bad, my bad, yeah. my bad. Had a little rock and roll in the background there. Yeah. Um. Hey, we've um we've talked a lot in the last several days about um, education and, um, and, and, you know, Dr. Rich O'Malley's with us and, um, and, and we'll, we'll kind of debate, discuss and, and have dialogue on s- some issues we're dealing with specifically to the tax increase. But then I want to get um, k- kind of rambling about on some other things here, but, but I want to preface this conversation by saying what I said much earlier this morning. We all have a ideological philosophical perspective we come from. It, it, it is of your own making 
But others contributed to that. I was uh, kind of debating with a friend of ours, Rev, yesterday about my, my opinion on, uh, on taxes and tax increases. And I said, hey, man, I was raised by a self-made business guy who believed the government was out to get him every day. Now, now whether they were or not, what was up for debate, I guess some days they were and other days they were not. I can't run from that. I can't deny that. That, that is my predisposition. That's the, kind of um, that's the events and experiences that shape my opinion about government. So philosophically and ideologically, I'm going to always naturally be inclined to oppose tax increases. Uh, you know, the government's getting bigger. The government just has more money. And I'm not just talking about education. I'm talking about infrastructure and the IRS and the FBI and the CIA. And uh, the last thing they need is more of our money. So, but but I want you to understand as listeners to this show that that when when I talk to Dr. Rich O'Malley, it is from a perspective of being somebody who just just believes that government has enough money, doesn't need any more money, but I don't have an obligation to run a school district. I mean, I don't have 15,000 kids uh, to make sure they're proficient in education. And that's why I'm enthusiastic about Dr. O'Malley agreeing to come on. We can have some of these discussions that I think are necessary and warranted to help us understand what the district is trying to do, uh, why they're arguing that they need, that they need more money. So, so, you know, I I just want to, I want to, I want to, that's kind of my prelim to some of the questioning and debating and, uh, and dialogue we'll have with Dr. Rich O'Malley, Superintendent of Florence District 1. Good morning, sir. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you? I am doing well. So so let's let's start in the beginning. In the beginning, um, <laughs> you, you come here uh, from a land far, far away. And, and, and I've told you this on the record and off the record. I think you inherited a culture of incompetence, a culture of irresponsibility. I applaud what you've done in addressing that culture. But in 2019, um, we, the people, were asked to support a $198 million tax increase via a referendum in February of 2019. I think we voted that down, 75-25. That was in no way, shape, or form an insult to your abilities, but rather political retribution for those who came before you. Um, You still got a lot of things done that we thought we needed $198 million a lot of people have asked me, okay, if they needed the $198 million to do these things, they didn't get the $198 million, but they were able to do a lot of these things anyway. They didn't need the damn money to begin with. Kind of walk us through how you accepted losing the referendum, but were still able to build stadiums, build buildings, renovate facilities. Well, it's uh, I don't like to go backwards, but I would have to say that the referendum probably was the best thing that happened to me. I probably didn't feel that way that night. Um, but what it allowed me to do is to showcase what I think um, what is what the board hired me to do is we've we've got to do those things um, and we got to figure out a way to do it. And I, I think just looking at sort of how things worked, um, I'm not a go along to get along kind of guy, so it was naturally for me to to dig in and fight and say, well, I, I may have lost the battle, but I'm not going to lose the war. And so that's what we did. And we sort of chipped away at how can we use our money wisely. And I, and I think, you know, I'm not going to sit here this morning to try. I'm, you know, we're two former politicians that get to talk about things and, and say a lot of things, hopefully this morning, that won't get me in trouble, but maybe. Um, but with those guys on Friday, 
can't say, which is unfortunate. I, I think I've never come into a job to say, I'm not afraid to get fired. I'm going to do what's right. And if things work out, they work out. And I think that's what our society is today. I think our politicians suffer from that because they can't do what's right because of the way we are. But that's that's where we are, and we have to figure a way around it. So I, I don't get, as an educator, there I only get my revenue from taxes, period. I have no say in whether I like it or not. I have no say on how you collect, whether it's from businesses or whether it's from individual property tax. It's the way of my world. I have to deal with that. And so um, I think, in my opinion, and I, and I would consider myself a fiscal conservative, uh, we've moved away from how government spends its money to just focus on taxes. And I think what we've done is reprioritize how we spent the money we currently get. And I think that is an important part of this discussion. And I think that's how we've tried to build trust. I only have two sorts of taxes. There's an operating millage and then there's a debt millage that we've had. Uh, We have not raised the operating millage since 2017. In 2017, it was raised about 9.3 mils um, to where we are currently. So we've been operating and doing all those things. And I don't think there's a person in Florence today, whether they like me, whether they're a Clemson fan or a Gamecock (laughs) fan that can't say we've done some really amazing things on any metric that anybody wants to say. And we've done that without raising taxes. Now, we did have to raise a tax on the debt, um, which hasn't been raised in 30 years. We raised that, but we lowered it. And I think... People said to me, why are you going to lower it? You're just going to have to do it again. I just feel that if I need the money, I'm going to spend it. But if I don't need it, I give it back. And that's rare. I find myself to be rare, but I think taxes are about, and I think spending the money wisely is far more important than the tax issue. You can be against taxes. Um, I can't. Um, I would say in your world, you can't be against advertising. You wouldn't be sitting here if you had a philosophical thing about advertising. It's how you're funded. So I appreciate that understanding, but I think ultimately it's got to be about, and I think that's where if there's anything that people can't say is I'm not the establishment. I've spent my life not being the establishment in education, and it's about I can spend their money wisely, and then if, and that's why I'm here today, if I need more money, I'm going to tell you why, and I'm not going to complain that the state has to give me more money. The federal government money is not going to be uh, uh, is not going to solve education. I, I, I think with the federal stimulus money and all that shows it didn't fix anything. I think how you spend the current money is far more important a conversation that we need to have. Let, let, let's go. So in 2019, when you get here, I went back and looked at some numbers on uh, the FSB one website in 2019, the 1920 budget was 157 million. Mm-hmm. The proposed budget is 191 point. Point seven million. Uh, why? Why do we need an additional what 30, 33, 34 million dollars from nineteen and twenty when the referendum failed? That's the only reason I'm framing it this way. When the referendum fails, the the general fund operating budget was one fifty seven million. You're asking for one hundred ninety one point seven million. Why do we need that much more money? All right. So let me go back a little two years. So two years twenty one twenty two. I won't go back that far. It was one hundred sixty five million. Okay. Last year, we went up to 175.9, million. Uh, a majority of that, probably $9.5 was because we took on Florence 4. That was their budget. 
So all that comes. Although we merged, we took all their teachers, their buildings, any debt they have, whatever it is. So that's why our budget went up so much in that time. This year, we're asking for $14.8 million. Um, there's the revenue side, and then there's the expenditure side. I think your question was more on the expenditure side. And um, I, I brought my notes here so I can talk sure. slow so people can hear me on the radio. So <laughs> that kind of helps. I, uh, I, 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 I want to get into the weeds, <laughs> but I don't want to. I want people to understand. So of that $14.8 million, 9.4 is for personnel. So of the $190 million budget, 85% of my budget is salary and benefits. I really don't have a lot of control of other things other than salary and benefits. And I think people need to understand something as well. So I would say uh, assistants are one of the reasons we want to give a raise to. 90% of my, I have 400 assistants. as kindergarten assistants, people who will help out in the classroom, not certified teachers. 90% of them live here in Florence. Of the 85% of my sort of, but 85% of the total personnel in our district, we have about 2,400 um, employees. They live right here in Florence. So when you talk about big government, when you talk about, you know, the establishment, it's your neighbor. It's your neighbor in Florence. It's me. I live here. Uh, my kids went to the schools here. So we, we've got to stay away. And I sense, uh, I feel like it's the boogeyman politics of big government. It's, it's the Democrats here. It's the Republicans there. These are our neighbors, and this is our school system. And I think we've proven that a good school system can raise a community up and unify a community. That's what we've done. So that 14.8, 9.4 is for personnel, and that includes step increases. And I think people need to understand from when uh, the state says that they're funding um, and giving teacher raises, they're only giving teachers that are on the teacher scale. That's not everyone. And then when they say they're funding it, they're only funding a teacher at the master's with 12 years experience. That's what they're funding. Anybody master's 13 up to a doctorate, you and I have to pay through our budget. So they're not funding that, which is kind of counterintuitive. You want to say we want to attract and retain the best and brightest of the teachers Yet we don't fund the people who've gone out of the way to get. And, and that would be the two hundred sixty million aid to classrooms. I mean, that would be the state's additional funding that that equaled what two hundred sixty million. Right. They they called it or declared it aid to classrooms. That doesn't cover every teacher. That that is correct, and it doesn't include every employee. So I have about twelve hundred certified teachers. So that's who would be covered there. But forty nine percent, I think it's about five hundred and sixty teachers aren't funded because they have a master's and 13 years or more experience. So that falls on us. What they also don't fund is what we call local supplement. So every school district has the ability to say when teacher salaries were really low, uh, we're going to add an additional thousand dollars as a local. We'll put that in our budget. So they don't fund that. We fund that. And that's to be competitive where a Charleston and a Greenville and, and the Midlands or your County, they can add, 5,000 to their local supplement. We couldn't do that. That's hard for us to compete. So it's not that money is going to be, you've got to understand what they're doing, you know, and, and the next thing that they're doing, if I could put it in simple terms is they're, we used to, because the state funds everything in education, money controls uh, everything. 
they used to have line items. So if I'm going to pay for a reading coach, it was a separate line item because the state wanted to say, hey, we're paying for these reading coaches. Well, what you hear them talk about is how they've rolled up money there to give us more flexibility. It has nothing to do with flexibility. So, for example, if you have line item one, two, and three, all right, say line item one has $10, line two and three each have a dollar in them. They took line two and three and rolled that up into one. They no longer have the other items. Now, line one now has that 10 plus the additional two for 12. So they'll say they're giving more money to education. They're not. They're just rolling it up into an account that has more money. They don't talk about the others have zero. So that rolling up is also sort of a funding fallacy, I would call it, that we're getting more money. Now, we are giving more money, and I will say, since I've been here, every single budget has given teachers and school district more money. And so I don't want to say that they're not, um, and I also don't want to say money is going to solve our problem. Did we address the issue with teachers' starting pay? I mean, yeah. I, I know South Carolina aggressively try to address and become more competitive in starting pay for a teacher that just graduates from Clemson or South Carolina. Or have we adequately addressed that? I, I don't, we were so far behind. Um, I don't think you can say yes. And that's why I say every year that I've been here, Governor McMaster has put in his first thing in his budget, teacher pay, teacher pay. But you can't compete when you're so far behind with other. I say of the people that are leaving our district every year, they're going out of state. Most of them are going out of state because they can pay. You're never going to fill that gap uh, and compare to other places. It's too much. But yes, we are addressing that. But the profession as a whole um, is and, and, and we've taken the approach. It's not just about pay. If you really talk about educators and people that have been in the system for it's other quality of life things, having having preschool, uh, having their kids in the school, you know, parental leave and things like that, tuition reimbursement, things that are good quality of life and paying for health insurance. I think those are the kinds of things we need to look at as a state that we've been doing to help retain and attract teachers. It's not always about pay and education. Hold on to that. Let's take our first break. Dr. Rich O'Malley, Superintendent, Florence District 1. I kind of want to get in the weeds a bit on, um, he talked about salary and salary related. I, I want to kind of focus on that. I think there's a lot to learn um, and educate our listeners about um, some of the complications of compensation in, uh, in government. Back in just a few. Welcome back. Dr. Rich O'Malley, Superintendent of Florence District School 1 is with us. I'm the no-hate or the no-tax-hating business guy that, um, that rails against any tax increase that ever comes uh, down the pike. One of the complexities of being in politics is to be conservative. I mean, it really and truly is. It puts you in a very um, complicated and conflicted um, situation. You're in business, and then you get in government, and you believe all of your life that business it's controlled by government. Government's the big problem, the reason everything's going awry. And awry. Anyway, um, and then you become part of the problem instead of part of, of the solution. But but the one thing that I've always paid close attention to, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's government accounting or not. Two plus two equals four. Four plus four equals eight. Eight plus eight equals 16. Um, I can't go much further than that. <laughs> but, um, but, but Dr. Malley, I, I want to go here for a second because I think if you could explain this to our listeners, we would better understand um, the, the nature of government accounting and, and public education. So you mentioned a second ago that 1,202 teachers in school district one. Um, and I, you know, I'll let you distinguish what is a, this kind of teacher, uh, juxtaposed to that kind of teacher, the state average for a salary in South Carolina is 53, 326. 
I got to believe we're kind of close to the state average. I'm making an assumption. Maybe we aren't. But uh, but if you take 1202, you multiply by the state average, you come up with $65 million. Your, 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 your ask is $192 million from $176 million, $192. I'm rounding off here, but stick with me for a second. That means that we got 847 non-teachers splitting $100 million. As a business guy, that raises a red flag. Help me understand what what is, I mean, in the private sector, I have a contract to host this radio show. I have a base salary. I have a performance bonus and another performance bonus, and I get a quarterly this. And if we exceed this number, what is all in on a teacher? I mean, if the, if the average salary is 53, 326, but we hear a lot about retirement and, and insurance and help us understand what, what it costs the district to, 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 to retain and maintain uh, a good, solid teacher. So um, that average is basically sort of the starting point. So like I said, the 1,200 um, certified teachers, um, half of them are at that master's um, twelve. Half of them are above that, so they make far more than that. Okay. But when you take that, you've got health health insurance. You've got that. You know, we talked about last year. Health insurance went up eighteen percent from the state. Um, this year, it's three percent. And, and remember, they and do you got to find that money. I have to find it. But what's interesting is they do it on a calendar year. I'm not. I'm on a fiscal year. So in essence, I've got two budget years to do to account for. I've got 18% in half of the year and I've got 3% in another half of the year. They'll make, so when I do this year's budget, I'm accounting for 3%, but I don't know what they're going to do for the second half, which is quarter one and quarter two that I have to budget for or find in my budget if I do it wrong. Um, so, you know, an average teacher salary is fine. We're probably much lower than that. I think we're probably an average just below 50,000. Um, but, uh, workman's comp and all those things. The sort of formula you have is take your salary and multiply it times 0.31, an additional 30%. That gives you the full understanding of what a teacher would cost the district. And I think that's that's an important part of understanding that. How much influence do you have in a defined retirement plan or health insurance? Zero. And I think that's the stuff that really aggravates me is everything is done at the state. And that's why we have uh, what we have at the state. Everybody's sort of on the same level playing field of w- we get our health insurance. We have to be part. I mean, I've been told since I've been here, I can't get, I, I try to act like a business person. I know people may not think that because I represent the government, um, but I try to act like a business and I want control. I've had control in my previous 20 years of all aspects of running a school district like a business but the state does. And they've been telling me for years, I can't do it. But when I question that, I can do it. They just don't want me because they, the more people, if you know insurance, the more people you'll have and the better the risk pool or the lower the mm-hmm. risk pool and the more profits for insurance companies. I'd like to shop and we're going to do that. But again, we're going to challenge the status quo to say, hey, how much can I work with every year to help pay for what we want to pay for? But, but you would agree the General Assembly thinks that the danger of that is to run into the uh, an administrator who is not financially minded. He doesn't understand the game of finance, that they have control. And, and I get it. I mean, I, I've yeah. argued, and if Jay and Mike and Rick, uh, excuse me, Jay, Mike, and Philip were sitting where you are today, I'd say the General Assembly in South Carolina has too much control. I mean, I've said that redundantly. I believe that. But but to their credit, they would argue w- what happens when we get 
a school district managed by somebody who not is who is not a financial um, sound mind. And 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 that is absolutely true. And you you they'll probably say that when you ask them. Uh, as people had said in the referendum, I'll give you 198 million, but I'm not giving that government the money that's just going to waste it. That is the problem in South Carolina. There's not too many people that are going to buck the system. I have bucked the system. I'm not popular. Um, I I don't go along to get along, and I'm going to challenge everything because that's why I was hired. I'm not hired to just kind of get along. And so I I think I think our legislators. It's hard for them to say they support their local public school because it's, you know, they spend the most money and they have taxes that are associated. But I think they would all agree that what we've done in Florence won and that they'd like to give it to me, but they they can't trust the people around the state. I don't know how many times that they've said that. And I don't disagree with them. It's just wasted money. People are happy with going along to get along. We're constitutionally going to get paid. And people know that. And they just... There's just no willingness to be better. I always say, you know, we're a, a, a one and eight baseball team that wants to be, uh, you know, zero and 10. Uh, and I want to be undefeated. So you understand. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you understand the frustration the taxpayer has with education in general. I'm going to use air quotes here. Um the um, the wastefulness of education, the, the 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 lack of accounting and responsibility of education. I mean, you're arguing. Trust me, I'm going to be responsible. I am of sound financial discipline. But but certainly, you understand the taxpayer saying here, education is again right. asking for more of my hard-earned money. I would say that is the number one thing I've tried to develop since the referendum is trust. And I think over five years, when I haven't asked. And I hate asking people for money. Um, I hate asking somebody to help me do something. I'm going to do it by myself and I'm going to try to show. And I think that's what we've done. I haven't raised the operating millage since I've been here. And we've been able to produce these results. And we raised the tax, then we lowered it. So I'm trying to build trust. And I don't want to be lumped in with others um, who don't spend the money wisely, who don't do the right thing. I'm I'm willing to stand on my record. I'm willing to stand on any accountability system that someone has for me. But when I do ask, I want you to understand that I'm okay to explain it, but I also want to know that you recognize what we're doing. I think that's the important part of this. Uh, this number concerns me, and I want to get your take on this. So you got 1,202 teachers, um, and I'm just going by the average, and I had to assume that. You've got $100 million of taxpayer dollars being spent on 847 people who aren't teaching. Help, help me understand that. I mean, as a, as a business guy, that's a red flag to me. That, that concerns me. Um, why, why do we have 847 non-teachers splitting $100 million of the 190, uh, well, I mean, eventually $192 million general fund budget? Well, they're all not making that 60000 that, sure. That's what I'm saying. Sure. You have people well above that. You have people, um, half of the people make well above that. And so it costs a lot more. And then insurance costs and the other 0.31 that I talked about covers that. So that 847 covering the other $100 million is respectfully not accurate when you do the math. Sure. Um, so 85% of that 190 is all those salaries and benefits. So, so what, teachers aren't underpaid in Florence District 1. I would be hard to say that they're not under the underpaid. I would say in comparison to whom, if we just look in our, in our state, um, they're underpaid compared to Charleston and Greenville. And I think they've produced more. 
So to me, they should be rewarded on what they have done, not just because they're a teacher. So I think our teachers should be paid more than those in Charleston. Just because they're in Charleston um, doesn't make them better. And we've proven it. And um, so I don't think, I think they're, I think we need to, you know, during um, the COVID period, everybody was talking about how wonderful teachers are, you know, only in emergencies and situations that we rally, but we never put our money where our, ma- where, where our mouths are in some sense to say, hey, these are the most important. I think that's what I've been trying to do in Florence is say this K-12 school district is so important to everything to build a good community. Um, and the teachers and all everyone that's part of it is your community. And they should be rewarded and not because they're being paid out of taxes, not somebody to be demonized in a sense of because where the revenue comes and, from. And I, I don't think questioning is, is demonizing. I mean, I'm certainly not demonizing yeah. teachers. I have great respect for teachers. I, I just think, you know, there has to be this balance of taxpayer interest and, and what public education deserves. You mentioned COVID. I want to get your take on this. So in CARES 1, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe my math is off here. But I went back and looked at the Elementary Secondary School Emergency Relief Fund. Uh, they, they've got all these acronyms, E-S-S-E-R, you know, COVID-1, uh, excuse me, CARES-1, CARES-2, and the American Rescue Plan. In CARES-1, it looks to me like the district got $4.5 million. In CARES-2, it looks like the district got $17.9 million. And in the American Rescue Plan, it looks like there was kind of a two-thirds allocation and a one-third allocation, and it totaled $40 million. So um, you give me a right thumbs on. up here. So, so the, the district got about $62 million in what I'll call COVID money. What did we do with the COVID money? What do you want to do with the balance left unspent of the COVID funds? Um, so each one of those are absolutely correct. That was I, what I would call that's life-changing money. Um, but what you can do, and, and, and if you think you should be worried now, you should be worried next year come September when that money goes away. If you use this money for operating expenses, you are in big trouble. And just think about that's two months away from a presidential election. What are they going to do? They're going to bail out all these people who have spent it poorly. But just to give you some big buckets, I wrote it down here. So $62.5 million, $27 million of that was used for construction. The West Florence Wing, the new North Vista. So we wanted, those are things we could not do in a referendum. We put it towards construction. One-time costs, I think, are important, too. We've done some things with air quality and um, um, the boiler systems. We're replacing the uh, cooling systems at both West and uh, at Wilson, almost $4 million. And then other air quality, changing some of the HVAC and things like that. We spent $10 million in technology. You know, we, we have Chromebooks and things that we had to do while we're online. We used to use those in our what we call our 8% money. So we used that for $10 million there. $8 million of it had to be set aside for what they called learning loss. So tutors for kids, different academic programs and stuff like that. That, that had to be allocated $8 million to the side. Um, another $10 million was used for supplies and health supplies at the beginning that all that scare was about, you know, PPE and all those things. So we spent about 10 million on that. And then 4.5 was what we call under their categories. They had 15 categories, how we could spend the money was called continuity of services. So to continue services, um, some uh, custodial contracts that we entered to clean our buildings and things like that. So that all equals the 62.5. I think what gets lost in the conversation though, is people, and all this is on our website, you know, and we could, we had a, 
We only had to put it in those 15 buckets of money. And that's how we've spent the 62. None of it was for operations because I can't, I can't afford when that cliff falls, you better brace yourself. One time money recurring expenses right. doesn't it, work. And you know, I mean, you could just look right here in North Carolina. I think, you know, Wake County, I talked about spending 400 million on salaries and things like that. Well, that is going to be the cliff that nobody wants to talk about. And it's going to come out a period of time where I think they're just going to put a Band-Aid on it because people spent it poorly. Uh, but over, otherwise, what you have to understand is they didn't just give us this money. I don't have it in the Rich O'Malley Florence One bank account. So they only keep, the state keeps the money. Now, remember, the State Department of Education keeps 10% of the total money that the state got. So they have over $300 million sitting in Columbia, just in the State Department, not in the General Assembly, for what they can use. I have no idea what they spent it on. They have, I have, there was no plan. There was no plan to say, districts, you spend it on this, we'll cover this. It, it's that's the leadership that's just been lacking on top of that. But getting back to my other point is we have to then ask for that money. So I, so I have 27 million in construction. I could only ask for the 8 million that I use for West Florence that I get. So somebody will say, well, you have got 19 million sitting there. How come you didn't spend it? Well, I can't do that until the next North Vista is finished. So I would say, and what I've asked is, can't you put, imagine, just imagine if I took 62 million and spread it amongst all the banks in Florence, what that would do for our local economy, what that would do for all the banks, and that we would draw off our local banks. But what they do is they keep that money, they gain all the interest, and then I can't do it until I finalize. So when I, if I use it for a teacher, for tutoring for a kid, until that tutoring is complete, I can't ask for that money. So you get into the argument of the government saying, well, they haven't spent all this money and what are we going to do with it? Well, that's not true. The truth is I can't go get it until I've proven that I have spent it. So the 48.5% the state declares as having already been spent, that, that's kind of a misrepresentation of the actual reality. Correct, because you can't, you can't expend that gotcha. until you have the receipts. There's going to be somewhat of a warrant on the, or a receipt on the yeah. other side. Hey, Correct. let's take a break. I want to come back. Dr. Rich O'Malley, Superintendent of Florence District School, uh, school district number one. We'll take a break back in just a few. 843-661-0937. Last hour of a Wednesday morning, Dr. Rich O'Malley has agreed to stay for a high. I don't want to say for however long it takes. Really, we locked the door. I mean, he's tried to get out of here twice, and we locked the door. Um, Josh has his foot against the door. We're not letting uh, him in. He's the only person from New Jersey in South Carolina not on the Grand Strand. You know, I'm, I'm joking about this. I said earlier this week, I think we should play the Michigan-Ohio State football game at Coastal Carolina's football stadium so their fan base won't have to travel to watch their beloved Wolverines and Buckeyes play one another. <laughs> the Northern Invasion is very – but Continuous. I joked around with Rich. We could say this on the air. I joked around with Rich, and I said, you know, Rich, if you said the same thing that you're saying today but with a Southern drawl, it would be a, a little better received. And I think he's accepted that as, as somewhat of a reality. I, I want to go to something, and I, I want to talk some more data, numbers, and stats, but, but I do want to go to – the philosophy of a tax increase. I've always felt when I served in elected office and had to consider whether or not to raise taxes, increase revenue, um, you know, a fine, a fee, whatever you want to call it. I mean, when you, when you try to increase the amount of revenue government needs to do its job, I always try to think about where the people I'm asking for the money are. 
And, and my concern, Rich, is um, I mean, I, you will advocate that you need more money. I, I could I could probably push back and say no, you don't. We've done a little bit of that here today, but but I do think we've got to consider the state of the economy, the inflationary pressures that that mom and pop are dealing with, that the families, the businesses are dealing with. I get it costs more to run a school district. I mean, inflation is not um, specific to the public or private sector. It it, it goes across uh, both. But how much consideration should you give when asking for a tax increase that we're living in the most inflationary times of modern American or in modern American history? Well, I would say, you know, your audience probably thinks there's never a good time. Even when, even when the economy's good, taxes are still bad. I mean, that's just a philosophical <laughs> thing. Um, and so two things I would say to that. One, as I just explained, uh, we could raise taxes almost 27 mils. We're only asking only, and I hate to use it that way, but we've looked at it and said, what, what is that gauge to say, here's what we need to operate, what we really need. So I think that, again, builds that trust of saying, I'm only asking for a quarter of what I could get. Uh, most in the establishment would say, go for it all so you can have it to spend. Um, I think the second thing is we have not raised the operating millage and we've produced results academically, athletically, in the arts, facilities-wise. So we, we've tried to maintain that. So I, I think those two items show that we are concerned about, I'm a taxpayer. I don't like taxes. I know I'm from New Jersey. I know all that stuff, but I don't like taxes either. Um, so I, I, I think that's a big thing. I, I talked about how my, my board made in my contract that I have to live here. So when I make those decisions, and I only am infected, but I have to go out into the community and when I go to the grocery store, defend that. So I think that's a real big thing on, on the minds of myself. Um, and, and those uh, on the board. You you mentioned uh, a while back, or maybe it was on the air, maybe it was off the air, but um, but, but the culture of education, that's my concern. I mean, I'm back to philosophy here, that, that educators have historically believed that their mission, their job, whatever it takes. I mean, however much money we need. I told you the story about when I was lieutenant governor, I went to an event you know, the, these counties, they have a Lexington County Day and a Florence County Day and a, and a Darlington County Day. And and I went for a friend of ours, a senator, um, asked me to go and, and, and attend the Lexington County Day. And I got involved in a conversation with a someone in a similar position to yours. And, I and you know, in, in a very respectful fashion, I said, you know, exactly how much money does education need? And and he said, all of it. We, we'll never have enough. But there, there's a mindset of a lot of conservatives in America that education will never have enough. We're feeding a beast. That there's a monster there that is charged with doing something very important to the social construct of our of our. I mean, how do you? I mean, what do you say to that person? Not, not you personally or specifically, but but the mindset of the culture of education that that you know we need more, 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 more. We'll never ever have enough. I've never taken that. Do position? you accept that as a reality? No. Absolutely not. And I think my career has, I finished my 19th year as a superintendent and I've never had that mindset and I've always been accountable financially and done those things. And I think that's a real good question. And here's what's scary about it is, you know, as you saw the legislature just do with, with choice and, and giving. So you have to think of the establishment side is from, from the legislature, they're like, well, we're going to give choice and that'll drive competition. The establishment doesn't think that way. They're going to say, all right, take the money. You still have to give us money 
and it is what it is. We don't want to be better, but we know we're going to get paid. So it actually erodes more and more from the kids who need it the most than it does to solve. And, and that's the frustrating thing for me is that the legislature is constantly trying to figure it out, but they're against a monster that doesn't want to improve, doesn't want to. And they know, almost like in the tax abatement, they know they're going to get their money and whoever suffers, suffers, um, which is a sad thing. That's why we're 47, because they don't want to compete. I, I want to compete. I mean, I'm under the mindset, you know, we're absolutely in the opposite direction. We've got private school kids coming to us by the dozens and, and people coming out of the charter schools. We just closed the charter school. We, we made the decision that, hey, if you're not going to be improving, we're, we're gonna, you got to be the standards that we, we set. That is excellence. And so I think that's sort of the nature of what the voucher bill or whatever you want to call it is. It's, it's, it's eroding the kids who need the most, but they think they're helping the most. And it, there's no sense of competition. Because remember, most people in my position have never been in the business world. Most people just work their way through a system. They get there at a certain period in their life and they just want to keep it status quo. Don't rock the boat. I want to get to my pension and move on. Not many people are like me to say, we want to compete. We want to be the best. So, so how pervasive is that mindset and how do we root it out? I mean, that, that, that's, that's rotting the culture of education. I mean, you just talked about the education establishment. I mean, I refer to it as the education cartel. I mean, it's not a meritocracy. They honestly, I mean, this is unfair to say they don't care about the kid. I mean, that, that's an insult that they probably don't deserve, but they don't care about uh, performance. That they're not as interested in how much better we educate kids in South Carolina. It is how long before I can retire, how much retirement do I get, and is my health care secure until the day I die? Is that a fair criticism amongst many Americans as it relates to the education establishment? It is, but I, I don't want to paint everybody with the same fair brush. Enough. But that, that's what you're up against. Those who have the control of the money, it's all a finger-pointing game. And I think here in South Carolina, we're so worried about teachers' unions, but we almost have it worse because in some sense, the teachers' unions are held to a higher standard of accountability of academic performance and performance than we have here because they just throw up their hands and say, listen, constitutionally, you know we're, go we're going to get the money. Whatever it is, we just got to fulfill that minimally adequate and then we're all doing just okay. Why have we been? I mean, I'm interrupting you, but why have we been okay with minimally adequate for as long as we have? I have no damn idea, to be honest with you. I don't know how else to say it. It's just, it is the most frustrating thing. You know, last night we had a board workshop about our goals, and, and I said the underlying goal has to be we have to wage war on minimally adequate. That's how we get to where we need to be, and and that's I don't know why that's acceptable. I just. I just don't understand why. And it's been in, in it's been everyone. And, for, you know, my colleagues probably don't like me because I've challenged that. I've challenged the go along to get along. If you have a teacher, I need a teacher. I'm coming after your teacher. I, that's that's the nature of competition. That's how it has to work. But yet they don't think that way and they'll isolate me and, and, and do those things. But you know me, I don't back down. <laughs> the superintendent of education ran as a reformer. Uh, Ellen Weaver ran as a change agent. I mean, you, you know, I don't know how much you interact with the superintendent of education, but but if indeed she has the ability to influence, you know, the, the quality of education kids receive in South Carolina, and we are battling some of these cultural 
generational issues. Um, I mean, what advice would you give uh, to, to somebody like Ellen who ran as a reformer change agent and, and they'll find out how hard it is. I mean, you know this as well as I do. It's easy to run as a reformer. It's damn hard to reform. Um, yeah, I, I would say even my, my nature of politics, I like running for politics. I hate the governing part of it. Um, so I, I think she needs to look at how to, how to, I talk about not ruffling feathers, but plucking those feathers to make it feel different. What we do is we, we try to gauge in competition and how can we challenge that? And we work over here, but we never fix the actual establishment. I think there needs to be an accountability system. There needs to be change in leadership and how you go about doing those things. I just, it's, it's a hard system. It's politically driven. I think it needs to be rewarded. I think places like Florence should be rewarded for the actual things that we're doing. Um, and I think some local control needs to happen. I would hope that our delegation would maybe say, listen, we, we, we want to be like Texas. We want to go away from the union and we want cause we know we could do it better. And under your rules, we're never going to get there because you're trying to make everybody play. So I don't want to give her advice on how to do those things, but I will say you have to blow it up and start again. That's interesting to hear from an educator or to hear an educator um, say that. Last question. Appreciate your time. Dr. Rich O'Malley, superintendent of Florence District 1, is here. I want to get a bit philosophical here, and it sounds like a campaign speech or closing <laughs> argument on a debate. Um, I mean, I, I, I study this a lot, and I think my opinion has some credibility with some people out there who, who believe that I – give the effort necessary to better understand your position. I respect your position. I may disagree with it, but I respect it nonetheless. Here's my concern, and, and this is kind of a macro argument, but it does play into a lot of what we've talked about for an hour and 15 minutes. The government's growing at about 1% faster rate than the private sector is, 16 quarters consecutively. Now, now I argue, and you and I could have a beer and talk about what happened after 2008, you know, where the government bailed out the banks and, and what America looks like post-2008, um, the, the, the reality is that the, the the growth of government is outpacing the private sector by roughly 25%. When you raise taxes, you transfer a certain amount of wealth from the private sector to the public sector. I believe that inhibits economic growth. I'm not saying you waste the money. I'm not saying you're, laser, you're not laser-focused on better educating young kids. But that is an economic reality in a macro sense. That's why I'm naturally opposed to raising taxes, because it empowers the government with more of our economy's funds. Convince me, because I think if you convince me, you convince many others like me why this is a worthy cause and should be supported. Well, I think because it's the fundamental part of a, a community is schools, police and fire, those are all paid through taxes. That is what a community says they value. And what I'm trying to make the argument is that your public school, and, and I see it, uh, when I'm out, people are very thankful of how we've changed our public schools here in Florence. And I think people wanted, want to invest in that. And that's, that's something that, th that we should say is that we want to make our community better. And that's what we do. We've, we've have a track record of, of not just raising taxes because we can, and we've not raised them as much as we can. And I think that is what we try to build is that trust and that I, I can't, I, I think government finds a way 
to always fund another program. I mean, you just think of the money that that 62 million that I, where did that come from? I mean, why can't you feed my kids? I mean, why can't you build affordable housing? All of a sudden, my wife's a hundred percent Ukrainian. So I, I, you know, the war in Ukraine is very serious to us, but we find money all the time to just send it over. Why don't we take care of us first? I, I, I think for the Trumpers out there, that that's the underlying theme. What about me? And what I'm trying to say is I understand about you. Um, I've tried to do my best to explain why I need the money and what it is. I'm a victim of how I get my money and then who gives me the money. I can't change that. But I can just say, I think we've run a very good school district. I think we've had some really good outcomes of what a community would want. And I, I don't believe that we always say um, we need more money. I'm not of the opinion that never if we're never going to have enough. I can say I'm appreciative of what I have and let me show you what I can do with it. And therefore, the next time I really need it, you're going to trust me a little bit more. But nobody likes taxes because we just keep spending. Nobody ever gets rid of a program. They just add on to it. So until you have politicians who are courageous and say whatever the hell they want like us, nobody's going to actually run to say, I don't give a darn if I'm ever reelected again. I'm going to fix this, get rid of these programs, and make real courageous decisions. Um, it's never going to happen. And we're just we're, – we're sort of what I call – Boogeyman politics and an angry economy. You have to be angry. Bud Light's a great example. We got to be angry at someone that affects the economy. Boogeyman is there's someone over there. And what I'm trying to say is the boogeyman is your neighbor. Your neighbor is the government. Your neighbor is the person running the school district. And if you want your community to be better, you really have to show that you have to invest in your public what school. What metric are you most proud of relating to improvement of education in Florence District 1. I mean, is it graduation rate? Is it, uh, you know, um, the number of fights we've had? Is it uh, proficiency in reading? Or I mean, what number? I mean, this is probably unfair. There's probably not a single number. But if there were a single number that, that encourages you and motivates you to know where it's, it's working and we are giving a better quality education in District 1, what, what would that number or metric be? I, I would say it's a qualitative measure, not a metric for me. And what I mean by that is that the guy from New Jersey, who's a Clemson Tiger, who pretty much that narrows it down to the people who would like me less than 1% of one, um, come up to me and say, I appreciate what you've done for our school district. And they tend not to have kids in the school district as well as having kids. To me, that's the greatest metric that I can have that people recognize and they believe in their public schools and they want better for their community. So to me, that, that, outweighs anything graduation rate you know test scores that those people understand they're listening they're paying attention and recognize that appreciate your time thank you dr rich o'malley superintendent of florence school district one we'll take a break we'll be back in just a few moments what's that 60 minutes thing i feel like a journalist now I feel like a real journalist now. Do you? I don't feel like an opinion monster. Really? I don't feel like a wild man with a radio show. I feel like an actual <laughs> journalist. I've got socks. i got a collar. i got a belt. Right? I mean, am I right, Rev? I mean, oh, give me yeah. some credit here. Oh, yeah. Do, do I have a collar on my shirt? You do. Do I have socks on? Um, yeah. Do yeah, I have a you belt? Do today. Yeah, that's right. What in the world? I dressed up for I this even journalistic endeavor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You must not have workout Josh. plans. 
Um, can we free up a line? I'm sure 60 Minutes is interested in my talents. Oh, that's uh, it. Being utilized in the world of journalism. Of course. I'll look into it. Uh, yeah, there you go. I'll look into I'll look it. Into, <laughs> I'll look into it. What a smart ass answer. Uh, that was great though. Perfect that is. answer. Eight four three. Because he's just returning the uh, six, smart six, one, assery, I guess. Oh, oh, oh nine three seven <laughs> is our number. And um and once again, uh you know I intended to be very respectful. Um I think we 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 honored our commitment to allow a forum and medium for someone from the school district. I I would. Love to have board members come on and express why they support this tax increase. Um, I mean, this has never, ever been a place where people get ambushed, nor will it ever be a place where people get get ambushed. I think you owe, I mean, if you've got a radio show with a pretty decent following and you choose to allow, um, you know, someone in official capacity over the air, you owe them the decency and respect of allowing them to articulate their reasoning or rationale in a in a most understandable fashion probably didn't change many minds. I mean, those of you who uh, are against tax increases are probably fundamentally against tax increases. I've got reasons that I'm fundamentally opposed to tax increases. I think my reasons are very sane. I think my reasons are very sound. I think my reasons for opposing tax increases are in the best interest of our nation. And, you know, doesn't mean I don't like O'Malley. Doesn't mean I don't appreciate um, what he's doing to get our school district in a much better place than it was prior to him being here. But but I fundamentally believe that we're heading to a place that will bring about far more trouble than it's worth. Well, that and that's interesting to me is the statistics you talk about where as more of the, the country's GDP is, you know, government and the government grows and the private sector shrinks at some point that's got to give and well, i think I, that's a point you well, made but i think we're past that point the, I mean, the I, scale has tipped well, i don't think there's any question about it and i think and and you go back to the number 16 consecutive quarters is a pretty good trend i mean it's a pretty good trend it's not 16 weeks it's not 16 days we've got 16 consecutive quarters where the growth in government has outpaced the growth in the private sector, including consumer spending, that only happens during a war. It never happens in peacetime. And it's not, Rev, that that we've gotten there. We've normalized it. We we kind of accept it. We're like, well, I mean, the school district needs a little more money. County needs a little more money. City needs a little more money. You know, tuition went up a little bit of higher education. I'm not saying these are bad people. I've never argued that people on county government or in county government or state government, they raise your taxes, you know, they're, they're nefarious. They, they have malice in their hearts. No, I would never argue that. I think these people are genuinely doing what they believe is the right thing. I'm concerned about the macro. And the macro to me is, once again, when you take a dollar out of the private sector and transfer it to the public sector, I think your economy is less likely to grow over the long term. And I think we've tipped, um, you know, the, the amount of money the government. See, I could be real red meatish and say, you know, the government confiscates a certain percentage of, you know, economic prosperity. And, and out of that comes, you know, all these programs and plans and um, health care for life and pensions for life and what we can't afford that. But I mean, that's what I fundamentally believe. I mean, I, I believe we're heading to a place of conflict. And I think there will be multiple conflicts. I think there will be a lot of conflicts 
I think one of the conflicts that we'll eventually see is a degree of resentment that people who work in the private sector have for people who work in the public sector. I mean, I think we're heading there. Um, how many 70, how many 65, well, let's, let's back up. How many 62-year-olds do you know that retired from a private sector company? How many 62-year-olds do you know that retired from the government? I mean, you expect the private sector to take it on the chin forever? And I'm not accusing anybody of anything. It's a reality. I mean, you can have opinions. I've got an opinion. Facts are stubborn things. And the truth is, the overwhelming majority of people who are retiring in their 60s and receiving government benefit, health care and, and retirement, are those in the public sector. We know the decline of pensions. What we know about raising the Social Security age. And you, I mean, that, that's going to create some, it's not class warfare because they aren't wealthy people. I mean, the majority of government workers aren't wealthy people. Very few have, you know, a couple of $3 million in a stock portfolio and a farm and a beach house and all these other sorts of things. But, but, but a lot of people are going to have to work. See, the great mistake a lot of us are making, you ready for a life lesson? I mean, take it for what it's worth. And, and, and Rev gives me a little credit on this. I don't think he intends to, and I don't think he likes to. <laughs> But, but Rev will say from time to time, uh, we, we kind of end up where he says we're going to end up one of these crazy days. I don't know how he gets there, but, but we get there. G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. I have an advanced degree in G.I. Joe with a oh, Kung yeah, Fu grip. Apparently. I have an extremely advanced degree in G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. Here's, here's what's happening in America today. Right before our very eyes, we've seen a tremendous decline in the number of jobs that have pensions. What we know that Americans aren't saving money because they can't. I mean, inflation is taking about every dollar to live. I mean, we're living, the standard of living we're accustomed to requires income. Well, it requires money. I mean, in some cases, people did extremely well. They sold a business. They inherited money. But that's extreme rare. The, the, the majority of people have kind of in their head formulated this, this plan forward of life. I'm going to work until I'm 67 or 8 or 9. I'm going to get my Social Security. And then I'm going to kind of cash in my, you know, um, stock portfolio or sell my primary residence, downsize. And, and you kind of do the math. And you say, okay, um, this is my plan at 70. And I think 80 is the new 70. I think the great mistake the majority of Americans are making, I've told Reb this in the last couple of weeks, has dawned on me. We kind of had 70 as this make-believe finish line for work. I mean, if you win the lottery, inherit a bunch of money, sell a business for millions and millions, Okay, you, you forget what I'm saying. How many of you have sold a business for millions and millions? How many of you have won the lottery? How many of you are trust fund babies? Okay, I didn't think so. Um, <laughs> so, so the majority of you are still with me, right? We're here. Okay, so, so, so I believe that we in our heads made a calculus, and we kind of had a financial plan. We didn't write it down every day. We didn't sit down with Charles Schwab or Reggie Armstrong and declare ourselves, you know, th this is the plan, and this is, I mean, it's, it's non-negotiable. This is the way it's got to be. And I think things have happened in the economy that, that we are catching up to. And I think the one thing that we're beginning to catch up to is the majority of people in America today will have to work past the age of 70 if they maintain the standard of living they become accustomed to. Now, now you can do what I'm talking about at 70 and adjust your standard of living. You can live on less to go. I mean, excuse me, you can eat ramen noodles a little more often. You can stay home and not go to the game. I mean, there, there are things we can do differently, but if we're going to maintain our standard of living, the only way to do it is to generate income. 
And the only way to generate income that I know of is to get up and go to work. So I think we're going to see more people and more people and more people. I'm not talking about government workers. I'm talking about, you know, us in the private sector. We're going to be forced to work longer than we imagined we would because inflation is destroying the dollar. Um, and I, and I, I don't, I mean, do you believe the government is really going to curtail spending? I mean, there's only one investment in America I'd make today. I mean, I'd, I'd invest, there's certain real estate I'd invest in. The only investment I'd make in America today is short the dollar. Mm. I think you're going to see a precipitous decline in the value of the dollar. I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, St- Stanley Drunkenmiller said it's the only investment he has confidence in. I mean, he's a lot smarter than I am, a lot wealthier than I am, but I share that sentiment. And I didn't get that from Drunken Miller. How do you, I mean, how do you make something so available and it not decline in value? I mean, there, there's no way. I mean, the Fed's balance sheet, we're freaking out when the Fed starts quantitative tightening for a quarter or two. I mean, the markets freak out. The economy freaks out. We're drunk on credit. We're drunk on, on free money. We're drunk on fiat currency. We're drunk on funding the government to take care of certain things in the world. And, and you know, the only way we do that is, is for the government to go in debt. So, so I believe, and I've concluded, that there's no way for me to, I've had this conversation with my wife and kids. There's no way for me to, I don't live an extravagant life, but I live a comfortable life. I live, I, I do kind of what I want to. I go kind of where I want to. Um, I, I'm blessed, but, but I'm not, I mean, I'm not wealthy. I don't live extravagantly by any stretch of the imagination, but I've determined that the only way I can maintain my standard of living is to work much longer than I thought I was going to have to work. And I think a lot of Americans are slow to come to that realization. That's just the truth. That's where we're headed. Uh, I'm not blaming government for all of that. I blame government for a lot of that. I don't blame a school board. I don't blame, you know, a, a local delegation. I mean, the federal government has the right to print money, the ability to manipulate currency, distort the value of that currency. You and I depend on dollars to pay our bills. The dollars are going to be worth a lot less and a lot less and a lot less, and things are going to be. I mean, do you really think inflation will adjust to go back down? I mean, do you really believe a dozen eggs will cost what a dozen eggs cost before COVID? No, there, there's no way. I mean, the market has adjusted. Uh, well, you know, we make credit more available. Uh, and, and I, you know, that, that, that's kind of a, um, I mean, I'm big on macros. I think you can go down the rabbit holes of micros and you can kind of drive yourself crazy. You know, a tax increase at a local school district, that, that's a big deal. It should be seriously considered. But, but I'm talking about some of these big, big debates that, that America's not having. And, and you know, the, the only investment I would make, if I were a multi-billion dollar hedge fund manager and I had to make one investment on one financial instrument, I'd short the dollar. Forget Twitter, for, forget electric vehicles, forget energy production. I mean, all those matter. And I'm not saying they go completely and totally by the wayside, but, but I'm as sure as I'm sitting here that my ability to earn money is the biggest thing I have going for me. The money I earn will be worthless as time goes by. Because I think the dollar, I mean, if we talk about debt demise and dollar decline, I mean, you know, the, 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 the petrodollar and the petro won, and I mean, there, there are a lot of places to debate that. And, and I guess the scary part is, as stupid as I am, I think I understand it. 
And and even more stupid than that, you think I understand it. Because <laughs> I can see the look in your eyes like, he freaks me out when he goes down these roads. Um, but, but I, I'm, I, you know, I just think that's where we are. I think that's where we're headed. Josh is looking at me like freaked out anymore. Josh is looking at me like, hey, dude, I'm 25. <laughs> I'm not old like you. <laughs> I got a lot of living ahead of me. Don't 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 make me jump off of a cliff. Don't jump off a cliff, Josh. Just decide that you're going to work a lot longer than you ever imagined you'd work, unless you fall in one of those three categories. Unless somebody before you made enormous amounts of money and leave it to you. Unless you go to the convenience store and buy a lottery ticket and win, you know, a hundred million dollars, or um, or you work for the government. That, that, that's just where we are, guys. I'm sorry. Now, now I do believe this. You ready? You want to get way out there? Mm-hmm. I do believe that governments will default on their pension plans. I think there will be a wow. day that people who work for the government believe they're going to get this, this much income and this much health care when they retire. And I believe that, you know, um, delegate legislative bodies around the country will be unwilling to do what the federal government has been unwilling to do, and that is address some of the deficits, some of the shortfalls, some of the unfundedness of these um, of these plans. And I think at some point in time, government workers will be told, probably email, because nobody wants to look you in the face and tell you that, that, that all these promises we made are not going to come to fruition. We don't have the money to pay your health care until you die. We don't have the money to give you 60% of your salary until you until you die. That, that's that's when you know that that's when everybody has exposure in this um in this deal. And I'm not a doom and gloomer. Guess what I'm doing this weekend? I'm going to the beach and drink beer. Guess what I'm doing at 10:30? I'm gonna turn the radio on and listen to the Gamecocks. I'm not shutting my life down. And, and I'm convinced. And, and I guess this is where we rally around one another. That the only thing I've told my kids this: the only thing I know I can do is get up and go to work. As long as the good Lord gives me help and I have an opportunity to earn a living, I'm going to be fortunate and take advantage of every moment. But but I think a lot of us have decided that at the age of 70, you know, I'm not going to work anymore. And and I just think when you get 60, when you get to be 69, you're going to look at the mirror and say, damn, I lied to myself for a long time. <laughs> you know, the math just doesn't work. I mean, I want to put gas in my boat. I want to buy my Gamecock tickets. I want to go to the beach. I want to carry my family, my grandkids to Disney World. What does that take? That takes money. Money. Well, I'm trying to think about the fallout from the declining dollar. So if it continues to decline, I mean, long term, what happens? Well, I think the dollar probably loses. Now, you're forcing me to be way out there now. <laughs> I know. Like I think you the started dollar, way out well, there. I think the dollar eventually loses a third of its value. I mean, once they begin transacting energy trades and something other than, and that's coming. Look, look, guys, the, the harder thing to believe is the dynasty doesn't end. The empire doesn't collapse. I mean, you see, a lot of Americans are so arrogant that we believe we can be reckless, careless, irresponsible, n- neglect reality. You know, uh, what, what's a boy? Well, it depends on what's a girl it depends on. Uh, you know, can a man marry a man, a woman, uh, abort a baby in the third trimester? I mean, all these things come into the collective of who we are as a people. But 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 you know, one plus one equals two. Always has, always will. And I, I just think that there, there there's nobody showing any serious thought when it comes to what, what I believe will eventually be our demise, and that will be our inability. I mean, there's cultural rot. I mean, there, there's human depravity. That's always been the case. Look at the Roman Empire, Caligula, and, and all that, you know, uh, 
so, so dynasties, but but I tell people all the time when I'll go down this road, they'll say, well, that's crazy. I'll say, no, it's crazy to believe the empire lasts forever. It's crazy to believe the dynasty never falls. But but once again, I'm not paranoid about it. I'm not consumed by it. I've, I've made a decision in my own heart and head that that's what I'm going to deal with. So I'm just going to, I mean, you and I talked a little bit about this off the air. The reason I go to the gym, as committed to the gym as I am, as committed to wellness and fitness, I have read a lot about longevity. And the one thing that will allow me to work longer than most is to be healthy, mentally sharp, physically able. That's why I go. I told my banker a couple of weeks ago, he and I were talking about something, going to the gym. Why are you so committed? I mean, it's crazy how many times you go and how hard you are. I said, well, I I think I got to live a long time. I owe you a lot of money. And I got to pay you back. And the only way I can pay you back is to go to the convenience store and buy the winning lottery ticket or get up and go to work. <laughs> and I think being healthy allows you to get up and go to work much longer than most Americans believe they're going to have to get up and go to work. Take a break. Back in just a minute. I don't get to make the rules. I just live by the <laughs> rules that are made for me, right? Really? And that's most of us. Man, here you go again. You're freaking me out. Well, I mean, contradict what I said. Well, that's you, the, that's you, the problem. Got a, you've got an equally powerful microphone uh, an inch from your face right now. Uh-huh. You, uh, so, so tell me I'm crazy. <laughs> I well, that's the that's the problem. That's why you're freaking me and, out and, because and, I can't. And, of course, there's some conspiracy theory intertwined. I mean, of course, there's some, you know, play it out worst-case scenario. It goes back to what my, I mean, I'll never get, my, my boys and I had a business together and, and I lectured them one morning sternly. I mean, I really got on their ass about something that I felt needed to be done a certain way. And, and one said to me, dad, you act like everything is going wrong. I said, one of these days, everything will go wrong. So you prepare for that every day. The likelihood of everything going wrong is slim to none, but it's not zero. I mean, it's not zero. So you've always got to prepare for what could happen. I didn't say what may happen, what could happen. And I think there's a pretty good likelihood that people are underestimating how long they're going to have to work to maintain their standard of living. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning. You're on the air. Hey, Dave. uh, We need to give uh, Ken one of them macaroni awards here this morning, man. Uh, I guess they really call it Marconi Awards, but... uh, We've got uh, New Jersey Clemson Tiger, and I worked with a New Jersey Clemson Tiger back in the day, and we actually got along, and we worked for a Fortune 500 company. But this is the quote for the day. Your neighbor is the government. Think about that. The mindset, your neighbor is the government. Think how well that works in East Germany and North Korea and China, but your neighbor is the government. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. I mean, there, there's an illustration there. Um, and, and, you know, somebody who works in the government all their life have a an interpretation of the government. Somebody who does not has another interpretation of, um, of the government. Got about a minute here. And I didn't mean to freak people out. I mean, I don't know how I got on that rant. Uh, sometimes, I mean, I got a note full of stuff here and a book full of, um, of things we could talk about. But, uh, but, but I, you know, I thank Rich for coming on the air. I thank him for explaining um, to the best of his abilities why he believes a tax increase is appropriate. I'm just, I mean, the macro concerns me. And maybe I don't give the specifics enough consideration because I'm so spooked by the macro. And the macro is that the government is growing faster than the private sector and has for 16 
consecutive quarters. That's an alarming trend to me. And I think we're past the point of no return. Um, how, how do you reverse course? I don't have any idea. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Maybe that's the best analogy I can come up with. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.